0: There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta, they were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on the beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles if they were dead and pinned on a card. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the four pevensies Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, but he was quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay, for deep down inside him, he liked boxing and bullying. And though he was a puny little person who couldn't have stood up even to Lucy, let alone Edmund, in a fight, he knew that there are dozens of to give people a bad time if you are in your own home and they are only visitors.
1: I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
0: Hello and welcome back at long last to the Inklings Variety Hour where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, pinner of literary texts to cards. and To kick off season three, I am joined by two very special guest stars, Eric Geddes, collector and bibliophile. How are you doing, Eric?
1: Oh, I'm good. Thanks for having me back.
0: It's so good to have you. And from the podcast, Fights with Jack, we have an Englishman, nerd by his own admission, and connoisseur of human folly, Mr. David Bates. Great to have you on the show.
2: It's wonderful to finally make it over to the Variety Hour.
0: I'm so happy to be David joining us this episode whose podcast Pints with Jack. You probably already know about if you listen to this podcast. If you don't, please finish listening to this episode first and then immediately check (laughs) out his stuff. I should say that whether you're a fan or a scholar, listener, I'm always looking for guests. So please do write in if you'd like to join us for an episode or three. You'll at minimum get a good conversation out of it with other people who love the Inklings works. So published in 1952, and dedicated to Owen Barfield's son, Jeffrey, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third book in Lewis's Narnia series. This is the first tale in which only two of the Pevensys, Edmund and Lucy, play a part, as Peter and Susan have become too old to visit Narnia. It's also the first tale in which a non pevensie comes into Narnia from the outside world, Edmund and Lucy's awful cousin, Eustace. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a departure from the other books for a number of other reasons. Far less time has passed in Narnia than in previous books. There's no single antagonist unless you count Eustace, but instead internal and external obstacles that threaten to prevent Caspian from completing his mission, which is to recover the seven lords of Narnia who had been loyal to his father and who had not been seen since they sailed east long ago. The book owes something to contemporary sea adventure stories, as well as to older stories of voyaging and travel, such as the Odyssey, Jason and the Argonauts, the travels of John of Mandeville, and many others. A number of critics have also remarked that it bears a resemblance to Irish Imrama, which is the plural of Imram, and these are tales in which saints or Irish mythological heroes find the other world by sailing west. Though importantly and true to its name, the Dawn Treader sails east toward the sun. Is there anything that, that you all would like to add that I think is important to note before we move forward to talking about this opening passage? Two
2: things. The first would be that if people are following along the Chronicles of Narnia with Dr. Ward's Planet Narnia hypothesis, this is the sun book. Uh, so expect lots of suns and lots of dragons. And I would also add. Actually, I'm going to say three things. It also always reminded me of Star Trek because it's very episodic, just puts me in mind of people in red shirts getting turned into dragons. Yes. And since you're also going to be talking about out of, the, out of the Silent Planet, I'd also say that you can see some echoes of that story in here, insofar as it is all about a journey to far-flung, interesting places, and a mental and spiritual journey that happens along the way, as well as discovering that uh, if you're the one going about doing the traveling, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the good guy. Yeah. Right on. Eric. were you going to say something?
1: I was just going to say, there's one thing I absolutely love about this book. It is my favorite out of all of them, I think. It's but, pretty high um, up there for me, too. Yeah, but I think one of the things that sets it apart for me is there, there is no clear antagonist. There is no Dark Lord or White Witch or anything. And I think that just makes it so unique out of children's stories that I've read. And I also love how, as they keep getting closer and closer to Aslan's country gets more and more spiritual and surreal and that kind
0: of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I I like that. I like that point. I think that might be just a feature of the genre as well, of this sort of, uh, as David was saying, episodic sort of structure. If a story is episodic in this way, where like an adventure happens in one part, and then you go to a new place and a new adventure happens and another place, another adventure happens. A lot of times the joy of reading it isn't seeing how some great, big, bad, evil person or thing is defeated, right? But rather seeing or, or where we go mist. next. Yeah, or, or green mist, <laughs> exactly. But rather seeing what happens next, right? And each little place has some kind of antagonist that you have to beat, whether it's you know something in yourself or something outside of yourself. It's really brilliant. I usually, with the Narnia stories, I usually ask the different hosts and guests when the first time was that they remembered reading this and what the reaction was. Honestly, for me, at this point, it's kind of a blur and I I can't really separate out when I read one Narnia story versus another. But do you all have any memories associated with Voyage of the Dawn Treader specifically?
2: Well, I was born and raised on them. And just before we started, I showed you a picture of little David playing with his plastic toy lion Aslan. So I've been exposed to Narnia for as long as I can remember. But this is certainly the book which Stands out in my memory as I was hearing it, sitting appropriately enough in the bath as my mother was reading me a chapter to keep me in contact with the soap and water for as long as she possibly could. And this was easily my favorite as a kid just because of it was high adventure and ships and sword fights, you know, what wasn't to love.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's part of the reason that I like it so much. And we're going to talk a little bit as well about how this is the point at which Lewis sort of figures out what Narnia is about, you know, as good as The Lion of Witch and Wardrobe and Prince Caspian are, it doesn't feel like it's quite congealed yet. Like everything's still growing, like in The Magician's Nephew, you know, I feel like the world kind of sets in The Voyage of the Dawn Trudder in a way that it hadn't yet where where Lewis was like, okay, is this a land of talking beasts or is it like a uh, land of human invaders that have come in from our world or, you know, how exactly do these things come together, but it seems to be much more have like a particular culture, right? And a particular um, flavor by the time you get to the voyage of the Dawn treader which is interesting because of course, like none of the voyage of the Dawn treader actually takes place in Narnia proper. It takes place in the world in which Narnia, the country exists, but not in Narnia, the country itself, um, unless you count the Lone Islands, I guess, uh, since technically, they belonged to that. They're
2: reclaimed, right?
0: Right, but yeah, it's it's interesting book. I think it misses being my favorite because of the silver chair. I think the silver chair may be higher up there for me, but I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about that opening passage. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I think this is probably one of the best first lines in literature. It's, it's brilliant. I could see Lewis just kind of like sitting down and writing it and having nothing to do with Narnia and then tying it into Narnia because it's it's, it's just fantastic. So he and describes- It
2: strikes me as very autobiographical because mm-hmm. you could very easily begin this story, particularly when you start learning more about Lewis's life. There once was a boy named Clive Staples Lewis. And he nearly deserved it.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. There are certain aspects of of Eustace's personality that remind me of what he describes and surprised by joy. You know, things He's a about crake.
2: He's a snob. Yeah, yeah. Unnecessarily uh, mean.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's an idea of what he would have been like if he'd been raised by these new progressive schools, Harold and Alberta, in Cambridge, of all places. I think the one place where it's not like Lewis, well, there are a few places, but I think one definitely is, is that Eustace seems to like Beatles and Lewis is terrified of Beatles. But yeah, so, so Lewis in, the, in this passage describes a, a bunch of different things, characterize Harold and Alberta's life. They include strange underwear, teetotalism, leaving windows open, calling parents by their first names and this you know to me uh, lewis throughout the chronicles of narnia because they feature children is thinking a lot and talking a lot about education so why are these things all a mark of eustace's miseducation or lack of education or or yeah false education
2: well throughout the chronicles of narnia People that don't smoke are always treated with a little bit of suspicion. So yeah, that's just that's just a mark of degeneracy in general. Yeah, uh, yeah. But what Lewis is referring to here are shavians, fans of George Bernard Shaw, vegetarian, non-smoking, teetotaler. The whole thing about uh, underwear, Sure, he was an advocate for a hygienic woolen underwear that was espoused by a German doctor named Gustav Jaeger and he claims that all other fabrics when used for underwear were injurious to your health. So <laughs> pretty much sure is the anti-Lewis. He uh, is mm-hmm. a good friend actually with GK Chesterton but the men could not have been more different. And so I think uh, for many of the inklings sure just he becomes the epitome of everything that's wrong with the modern world <laughs> getting all these terrible terrible ideas. <laughs> Yeah,
0: and I think a lot of the um, health conscious stuff—it's hard for, particular at that point, it seems to be hard to separate out what's what's fad from what's actual science. A lot of the concern with bacteria and with germs and things like that—like you see that also come in for satirical thrust in that hideous strength, right? Where the where the men from NICE are are trying to get rid of. Anything that's organic at all, right because it, it, it so cuts against their aesthetic and their and their sensibility. there's something inhuman. Uh, about this sort of progress to to Lewis, especially I think
2: both Lewis and his brother warney would pour out their ashes from their pipes onto the carpet and tread it in because they thought it kept away bugs. Um, yeah these yeah. these these were bachelors, and cleanliness does not seem to be particularly high up on their list of priorities.
0: Well when you're dirtier than the germs, uh, <laughs> the germs have to go away. <laughs> It's it's the way it's always been done.
2: I've also heard
0: horror stories about that and things that Joy, for example, had to deal with when, when she moved into the kilns, pretty, uh pretty funny speaking of funny this is the funniest narnia book uh, at least at the beginning right it's it seems to me to be where lewis really hits his stride finds his muse lewis has something to kind of satirize from the beginning and i think having the kind of energy wanting to make jokes at the expense of one's ideological opponents uh really Mm -hmm. does serve him well as he kind of turns the satire increasingly to into an adventure tale
2: do you all have thoughts about that it's certainly the one the more funnier of his books and it's helped in no small way by both an antagonist because Eustace is a bit of an antagonist at least to begin with who is incredibly annoying and then you've got somebody also like Reaper Cheap on board and you you know that these two are going to butt heads very quickly
1: I also think it's quite funny when they fall into the sea and they get fished out and Eustace is like, ah, I want to go home. Just his reaction to everything is, Wah. And you just want to say, shut up. Just,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: like you were saying, David, it was the poor opposite of Cheap and everybody else on there because they know what they're getting into, whereas he has no idea.
0: There's also such a um, combination of humanism and and just really kind of an older tradition even that humanism, you know, reacts against in the thinking of the Narnians, that Eustace and Harold in Alberta and Cambridge and every, you know, that, that entire sort of progressive world and Shaw are very much setting themselves against And Lewis is seeing more in common between traditional human cultures than than between those cultures and the, the kind of new modern progressives. There's a really funny kind of, it's almost like a discordant note ending Prince Caspian and picking up with this book, because really the ending of Prince Caspian and the beginning of this book really couldn't be more different. You've got this ongoing party with Aslan and uh, Bacchus and Selenus and lots and lots of wine and grapes and, and things like that. And school being, you know, a kind of almost modern school um, that the Telmarines are having, being disrupted by Aslan and bridges being broken and great, great party. And then the kids go home and then the next book begins with Eustace Clarence Scrub and this like really antiseptic, very safe upbringing and education uh, that he's had thanks to his progressive parents who are teetotalers and therefore probably a little bit Bacchus averse. But at the same time, both works in in dealing with education have a lot in common, especially when they're talking about what education should not be. Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man about a decade earlier, where he expresses concern that eliminating tradition from education will mean not inculcating the sort of emotional responses that make people human. He argues there that this will result in a generation of men without chests um, who are cynics and cowards. Words and cut off from most great traditions that are designed to make people not cynical and not cowardly. Eustace seems to be an example of the sort of little jerk that this sort of progressive education would produce. And as you were saying, David, I think possibly even an autobiographical, semi-autobiographical p- picture of the way that he could have ended up if not for, I guess, the great knock and, and you know his his love of poetry. And I remember having this old bearded professor, Doctor Baranek, who's you know gone on to be with the Lord. He knew every. He knew more than any of the other professors in in my graduate school, and he sometimes fell asleep during his own lectures. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I remember he said once that he thought we could do a lot worse education-wise than sending a kid to sea as a ship's boy when you turned 11 or 12 rather than high school. And I imagine that Lewis would have agreed. I'd kind of like to trace how these early chapters of Voyage of the Non-Treader are a satire on ed- education, as well as a kind of argument for what a good education should involve. Obviously, it's about a lot more than that, of course, but it's an idea I'd like to keep in mind. Let's talk about the first four chapters of this book, the... Youngest two provinces, Edmund and Lucy... Have been staying with their awful uncle and aunt and their awful cousin. They try to get away whenever they can from Eustace, who's very, very annoying. Talk, of course, about Narnia. And Eustace, of course, being Eustace, likes to listen in and make fun of them and make up limericks, like some kids who played games about Narnia got gradually bomber and bomber demonstrate that he knows what an assonant rhyme is. And they notice this picture that their aunt and uncle don't like, but they can't give it away. And it's a picture of a ship that looks just like a narnian shell
2: it's a rotten picture said eustace you won't see it if you step outside said edmund why do you like it said eustace to lucy well for one thing said lucy i like it because the ship looks as if it were really moving and the water looks as if it were really wet and the waves look as if they were really going up and down of course eustace knew lots of answers to this
0: but he didn't say anything the reason was that at that very moment He looked at the waves and saw that they did look, very much indeed, as if they were going up and down. He had only once been in a ship, and then only as far as the Isle of Wight, and had been horribly seasick. The look of the waves in the picture made him feel sick again. He turned rather green and tried another look, and then all three children were staring with open mouths. What they were seeing may be hard to believe when you read it in print, but it was almost as hard to believe when you saw it happening. The things in the picture were moving. It didn't look at all like a cinema either. The colors were too real and clean and out of doors for that. Down went the prow of the ship into the wave, and up went a great shock of spray. And then up went the wave behind her, and her stern and her deck became visible for the first time and then disappeared as the next wave came to meet her, and her bows went up again. At the same moment, an exercise book, which had been lying beside Edmund on the bed, flapped, rose and sailed through the air to the wall behind him, and Lucy felt all her hair whipping round her face as it does on a windy day. And this was a windy day, but the wind was blowing out of the picture towards them. And suddenly with the wind came the noises, the swishing of waves and the slap of water against the ship's sides and the creaking and the overall high, steady roar of air and water. But it was the smell, the wild briny smell, which really convinced Lucy that she was not dreaming. Stop it, came Eustace's voice, squeaky with fright and bad temper. It's some silly trick you two are playing. Stop it. I'll tell Alberta, ow! The other two were much more accustomed to adventures, but just exactly as Eustace Clarence has said, ow, they both said, ow, too. The reason was that a great cold salt splash had broken right out of the frame. And they were breathless from the smack of it, besides being wet through. I'll smash the rotten thing, cried Eustace. And then several things happened at the same time. Eustace rushed toward the picture. Edmund, who knew something about magic, sprang after him, warning him to look out and not be a fool. Lucy grabbed at him from the other side and was dragged forward. And by this time, either they had grown much smaller, or the picture had grown bigger. Eustace jumped to try to pull it off the wall and found himself standing on the frame. In front of him was not glass, but real sea and wind and waves rushing up to the frame as they might to a rock. He lost his head and clutched at the other two who had jumped up beside him. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they had got their balance, a great blue roller surged up around them, swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. Eustace's despairing cry suddenly ended as the water got into his mouth. So, so far we've seen a wardrobe provide a way into Narnia. And then in Prince Caspian, it seems like nothing really brings them into Narnia, but we find out it's Queen Susan's horn, which is blown from Narnia. And this time it's a picture. Why do you all think Lewis chooses a picture to draw them in this time?
1: He's kind of drawing on the fact that words can be very evocative, that pictures can be just as, if not more evocative. You just feel looking at some of them that you're like, yeah, I can I can imagine myself on this. What if he's just having fun with that and being like, well, what if we actually did go through here? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I like that idea. I like the idea that Lewis was at some point at a dinner party or wandering around Oxford or Cambridge and saw a beautiful picture and was thinking to himself, man, that looks really lifelike. It's almost like you could step into that other world. And then he remembered that he had already built Narnia and that this might be a a great entry in one of his next books. Honestly, this is my favorite. Entry into Narnia out of the entire Narnia.
0: Yeah, I think it might be mine as well. There's something about... This is getting into a whole complex of other topics having to do with Lewis, Joy, and Joy the concept, not, not the person. But there's something about the sea, and there's something about sailing on the sea that is so evocative for Lewis and I think even more Tolkien. But yeah, there's something so kind of painfully joyful, you know, something that calls to you when you see paintings of the sea or paintings of ships at sea. It moves your desire. It makes you want to be there. Um, At least least that's the effect it often has on me.
2: And Lewis would have experienced it very vividly every time he was returning home for the holidays from schooling in England. The sea was a a gateway back to the land that he loved because he wasn't great fan of England. And not only that, he was putting all of that horrible school and his schoolmates behind him and heading home to somewhere better.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That sort of motif of, you know, ending school and going on a holiday uh, it pops up again and again and again throughout the Narniad. It happens when there's an unexpected holiday in Prince Caspian, when the holidays are ending and and, uh, and suddenly they find themselves on another holiday. And then this one too, you know, holiday that was going to be spoiled suddenly. Wonderful, but there's always this escape element to it. But yeah, and I think I think also, you know, art and, and mimetic art especially art, art that looks like something else, right? And this, this is something that Lewis kind of touches on here, kind of another shot across the bow, so to speak, against uh, modern artists, you know, who think that paint should look like paint. Lewis loves paint that looks like something else, right? Uh, because there's there's something real coming through. And certainly here, there's Narnia coming through, even though this, is, this painting is an illusion. It's an illusion that's more real than the world around you. They find themselves in another world that in many ways is more real in the world that they were in. To get in the picture, they are in the water completely to get pulled up by the by the ship. Eustace does not make the best impression on Caspian and his crew. Caspian's about three years older than he was when they left him at the end of Prince Caspian. We meet Drinian, the captain of the ship. We also meet Reepicheep, who continues to be a swashbuckling adventurer in the in the mold of maybe Errol Flynn or Lancelot
2: or Arundel? Arundel.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's got He's such a brilliant creation of Lewis's because it's it's primarily like in Prince Caspian. It's funny that a mouse would have so much bravida or bravado, but gradually he's just kind of building layers and layers on Reaper cheap, right? So he, he by the end of Prince Caspian he learns to ca- not to care so much about his honor, and he's this incredibly chivalrous, gentlemanly mouse. He also has this deep desire to go to the ends of the earth, right? And the, which is a perfect thing for a knight to to feel to want quest. adventure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not just to destroy evil, but to discover good. So they get aboard the Don Treader and they begin talking with Caspian. Where are you heading for? Asked Edmund. Well, said Caspian, that's rather a long story. Perhaps you remember that when I was a child, my usurping uncle Miraz got rid of seven friends of my father's who might've taken my part by sending them off to explore the unknown Eastern seas beyond the Lone Islands. Yes, said Lucy. And none of them ever came back. Right. Well, on my coronation day with Aslan's approval, I swore an oath that if once I established peace in Narnia, I would sail east myself for a year and a day to find my father's friends or to learn of their deaths and avenge them if I could. These were their names. The Lord Revilian, the Lord Burn, the Lord Argos, the Lord Mavramorn, the Lord Arctesian, the Lord Restamar, and, oh, that other one that's so hard to remember. The Lord roop sire Drinian. "'Roop, roop, of course,' said Caspian. "'That is my main intention. "'But Reaper sheep here has it even higher hope. "'Everyone's eyes turned to the mouse. "'As high as my spirit,' he said. "'Though perhaps as small as my stature, "'why should we not come to the very eastern end of the world? "'And what might we find there? "'I expect to find Aslan's own country. "'It is always from the east across the sea "'that the great lion comes to us.'
2: "'I say, that is an idea,' said Edmund in an awed voice. "'But do you think—' said Lucy.' Aslan's country would be that sort of country. I mean, the sort you could
0: sail into. I do not know, madam, said Reepicheep, but there is this. When I was in my cradle, a wood woman, a dryad, spoke this verse over me. Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek. There is the utter east. I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. Speaking of assonant poetry, um, that uh, has quite a bit of assonance in it. That's all right.
2: Uh, Eustace doesn't comment this time.
0: No, no, he doesn't. I don't know if he... I think he's like down below <laughs> seasick at this point because they haven't used the cordial on him yet or, or something. But uh, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say. Yeah, it's it's a better poem than than Eustace's poem about some kids who played games about Narnia. Uh, again, this this eternal theme of all of Lewis's work, right? Sansukht or however you correctly say it in German. What are your thoughts on on this part?
2: Well, as you say, this is the defining characteristic of Lewis's life. In, he names his autobiography Surprised by Joy. He's talking about this indescribable something that has been drawing him along all of this time, such that he then even repurposes it in mere Christianity as an argument for the existence of God, that, well, if if a baby wants food, and there's such a thing as food, and a duckling wants to swim, and there's such a thing as water. Well, if there's this something inside of me that wants something that nothing in this world is providing, well, then that says I was made for another world. You see that idea here expressed in Reaper Cheap throughout the book that he is yearning for something. He doesn't quite know what but he thinks it's probably got something to do with Aslan and his country that's drawing him on regardless of whatever obstacles are in his way.
1: That's true. I just want to say that every time I read or hear those poetry lines spoken, I immediately think of the BBC movie from the 80s. Yes. Yes. Uh, But do you think Aslan's country, a sort of place that you can well
3: just sail into?
1: I know not Madame. but there is this. When I was in my cradle, a woodwoman, a dryad, spoke this verse over me: Where sky and
3: water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, weeper cheek, to find all you seek there in the utter east.
1: And just the way that it's like sung, kind of over the soundtrack. Whenever I think of that, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. That that's really, really awesome.
2: And little did we know that years later they would produce a new movie, and that the BBC version would still be better. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Much better. Oh my gosh. Because in the yeah. movie, this is really sidelined. This is yeah. nothing at all. Yeah. It's mentioned in passing, but that's it. Yeah. Is this is the
1: one thing I'll say because I could go on a whole tangent. The movie hurt me (laughs) so much.
0: Yeah, and we may cut this out. I'm not sure if I was angrier at the Hobbit movie or at the Voyager of the Non-Treader movie. Voyage, easy.
2: Yeah, the Hobbit was bad, but that was clearly padded. You could at least make sense of that. Whereas with the Voyager of the Non-Treader, it's like you guys really were trying something very different from the book and swinging a miss.
0: I should have known when they decided to make susan and caspian fall in love in the second book the second movie that this is set in a bad direction
1: they retroactively made the prince caspian movie worse because at the time i was like okay they're kind of setting up you know caspian is gonna meet the star and gonna fall in love and they completely butchered it and so i'm like <laughs> then that building block makes no sense it's just annoying.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think I've blocked out a lot of that, Uh, a lot of the memory (laughs) of that. David, I remember you talking about this on your podcast. Uh, Netflix is planning on doing Mm -hmm. Narnia series, which I'm like kind of dreading, but possibly it'll be
2: good. Um, Netflix got the rights a few years ago. They've done nothing with them. There has been a suggestion, a rumor, in just the last few days just before recording that the lady who directed Lady Bird... And the recent Little Women remake, that she might be one of the directors for a couple of the movies. But okay. it's it's really nothing more than a rumor at this point. We can just I, I comfort really ourselves by the fact that the BBC version is still there, ready for us to enjoy. Yeah. Yes, right. that
1: that one
2: is so amazing.
0: Yeah, you don't need good special effects to... Uh,
2: it does you know. help, though. <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it does kind of take you out of the movie when certain production choices are made in Mm -hmm. low-budget movies. Okay, like, I get that he's put everything to rights in Narnia. Things are good. You know, they've beaten back the Giants uh, a little bit. Uh, All all is kind of at rest. You still don't, unless you're like King Richard going on the Crusades, you know. Even then, it
1: probably wasn't a good idea. It wasn't
0: a great idea, right? Hence, Robin Hood.
1: I've come to warn you that if you do not stop levying these evil taxes, I shall lead the good people of England in a revolt against you.
0: (laughs) And why should the people listen to you? Because, unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. (laughs) I mean, Robin Hood's not historical, but hence the Magna Carta. It's an interesting uh, sort of talk about Aslan's management style that he's really, really not a... um... Micromanager? Yes, he's not a micromanager. He just... (laughs) of like sets people up and sees how things go. And it seemed to me that Caspian is probably also not a micromanager. The White Witch had to do everything herself. Um, Miraz too, (laughs) you know, but yeah, Caspian's just gone, oh, yeah, things look pretty good here at Narnia. I'm going to go and uh, sail after my dad's friends and, uh, and maybe rescue them, have some adventures. Trumpkin's doing fine. Um, Spring break. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this is Caspian's holiday, right? It's interesting. And and, and this also like kind of happens when, to skip ahead just a little bit, Lord Byrne, after they've uh, dismantled the slave trade in the lone islands. Lord Byrne is like, ah, oh, I think you should probably stay here, Your Majesty, and like make sure everything goes all right. And Caspian's like, no, Lord Byrne, nah, you got be this. Fine. Like, fine. <laughs> I feel like all kinds of other fanfic could be written. Things that go wrong in Caspian's absence. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and it gets to kind of the Star Trek thing that that we'll probably be bringing up, which is you have your most important person doing all the exploring in places where they could easily die um, or. It'd be we made a slave and, and sold off. We, we get some great description of the non-treader sailing, you know, and then and, and sailing from the place they pick up um, Edmund and Lucy and Eustace to the Lone Islands. This to me is kind of like paradigmatic of what it means to be at sea right because this is one of the early books that i read that talked about like sea voyages Um, what are some of your favorite moments from this from this voyage uh, between here and when
1: they get to the lone islands again i really like when eustace tries to play a practical joke on reaper chief and then he is not having that. No one touches the tail.
0: Yeah, and there, there's there's like constant sort of sparks between Eustace and Reaper But again, owing to the fact that they are their their value systems are so different, Cheap yeah. is far more human than Eustace is, despite the fact that he's a mouse, possibly because of the fact that he's a mouse, the chivalrous giving up of um, Caspian's room to Lucy, and, and of course, the, the diary of Eustace, right, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is, uh, again, when the satire is reasserting itself pretty strongly. Uh, and it's also
2: another part of that biographical element of Lewis's own life. He was also a journal keeper. And one of the things that happened at his conversion was that he decided that this sort of this particular sort of introspection wasn't particularly good for him, Hmm. and so that was one of the things that he stopped doing. Whereas Eustace clearly revels in it. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's his marks, (laughs) or or whether it's his complaints about other people, this little notebook is precious to him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if I wonder if Lewis kept. Kept a record of his marks as a child. I hope not. (laughs) Like I, I kind of almost feel like this is antithetical to being any kind of a serious student—is worrying about your grade to that degree. Readers, we're we're referring to this uh, little passage. What Eustace thought? Sorry, listeners, we're referring to this little passage. What Eustace thought had best be told in his own words. For when they all got their clothes back, dried next morning, he had once got out a little black notebook and a pencil and started to keep a diary. He always had this notebook with him and kept a record of his marks in it. For though he didn't care much about any subject for its own sake, he cared a great deal about marks and would even go to people and say, I got so much, what did you get? But as he didn't seem very likely to get many marks on the Don Treader, he now started a diary. I just kind of added the note that this is absolutely nothing like my students they don't care about grades at all um, they 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 always care about the subject for its own sake and whenever they write me an email or come to my office it's always for a deeper discussion of the you know of the subject at hand because they're such
2: passionate scholars i don't know if lewis had students like this but i certainly don't well it's not even really about the marks it, 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 this journal is just a cudgel it's it's a weapon mm-hmm. that he can use whether yeah. it's he can bragging about about a particular test where he got a higher mark than some other boy it's kind of immaterial it's just basically going to be his means of putting other people down and elevating himself yeah he's
0: trying to turn this story into um an as told by eustace story right that aligns with his his values um and and his uh, his view of the world and what's important and what's good
2: tiktok hadn't been invented yet
0: yeah yeah clearly <laughs> itself you know just really sort of reveals everything that lewis is concerned about with with modern education with modern views mainly eustace looks down on things for being Old, August 7th, have now been 24 hours on this ghastly boat if it isn't a dream. All the time a frightful storm has been raging, which is just like the rocking of the boat. It's a good thing I'm not seasick. Huge waves keep coming in over the front and I have seen the boat nearly go under any number of times. All the others pretended to take no notice of this, either from swank or because Harold says one of the most cowardly things ordinary people do is to shut their eyes to facts, capital F facts. It's madness to come out of the sea in a rotten little thing like this. Not much bigger than a lifeboat. And of course, absolutely primitive indoors. No proper saloon, no radio, no bathrooms, no deck chairs. So <laughs> I like that he especially, you know, points out the fact that there are no deck chairs, which is great. But uh, but yeah, he's mainly you know looking down at Narnia because they're not progressive and have backward views. Uh, so they treat girls uh, with chivalry and, and things like that. And then also they don't have as much material wealth as Britain in, in Eustace's day. Uh, they don't have regulation in the same way. They're don't have the same technology and it's clear that the main thing that Eustace has received from his education is a false sense of superiority over, um, you know, supposedly backwards people. I think this is a really important thing to to notice when we get to the Lone Islands and, and the slave trade, because um, this slave trade that Lewis kind of takes on is from the point of view of Gumpus and of the slave traders, certainly this is a progressive thing that's happening in Narnia, right? Harold and Alberta, Eustace's parents uh, would have viewed the slave trade as primitive and backwards, but like, mainly because it's something that happened in the past and we've moved beyond it now. Like that seems to be their only metric for judging mm-hmm. whether something is good or not, um, rather than some sort of like stable system of ethics. It's got more to do with is, is this the latest thing? Is this, is this the thing that all the civilized people are doing right now? All the people with means to have this sort of technology, is this what they're doing? Or is it something that was done five years ago or 500 years ago or something like that? And so for the lone Island Islanders and the Calamines, um, the, the latest thing is the slave trade and it's justified in exactly the same terms by gumpus and, and by others but yeah they so they they get to these lone islands which have been held time out of mind by the narnian crown lucy wants to visit felimar uh, which she hasn't seen since she was a monarch in narnia so they w- decide to take a party across consisting of uh eustace edmund lucy and uh reap and caspian lo and behold they get abducted by slavers sold to different people caspian luckily gets sold to Lord Byrne, um, his dad's old friend, and convinces Lord Byrne that he is in fact Caspian the 10th, come up with a plan to make Governor Gumpus uh, his sufficiency, um, as, as as he's called, which is just awesome, to, to make him basically uh, step down. He thinks that more Narnian ships are on their way.
2: That understanding of the human person is very different. And this is one of the Points that Lewis wants to emphasize of the value of people, that they can't just be used as means to an end. And that, in particular, is a a theme you find throughout Narnia, throughout all of his other writings. There is always a tendency by some people to see other people as things to use rather than people to love, Hmm. as well as those who are in positions of power. Well, the normal rules don't get to apply to them. If they're truly great, they can rise above all of this and they can basically do what they want.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you have Eustace saying that that's the way Caspian is being. Right, um, and 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 kind of whining about the unfairness and the tyranny of you know of a monarchy <laughs> and and things like that, right? Because because Eustace is used to being catered to all the time as a uh, Republican in the old sense of the word, right? He's sort of used to kind of being catered to by his own government as a sort of rep- representative parliamentary system, but he himself is a kind of tyrant, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's like democracy in this case has created nations full of tyrants, right? Who, who get to have everything uh, their own way, take exception to the fact that there are certain people who are kings, right? Even when those kings, like Caspian's doing, act like servants, even when they serve their, uh, their people. And in this case, of course, Caspian is not just a servant, but he's made temporarily a slave, ends up disrupting business as usual on the island, which he has every right to do as the monarch demanding from his sufficiency, Governor Gumpus, why uh, Gumpus has permitted this abominable and unnatural traffic in slaves to grow up here, contrary to the ancient custom and usage of our dominions. And uh, Gumpus is saying things like, oh, it's necessary, unavoidable, an essential part of the economic development of the the islands. I assure you, our present burst of prosperity depends on it. And then he finds out the slaves mainly are being exported to Callerman and and elsewhere. Continues to kind of say these uh, patronizing things like your majesty's tender years." "'Hardly make it possible that you should understand the economic problem involved. "'I have statistics, I have graphs, I have tender as my years may be,' said Caspian. "'I believe I understand the slave trade from within quite as well as your sufficiency, "'and I do not see that it brings into the islands meat, or bread, or beer, or wine, "'or timber, or cabbages, or books, or instruments, or music, or horses, or armor, "'or anything else worth having.' Whether it does or not, it must be stopped. But that would be putting the clock back, gasped the governor. Have you no idea of progress, of development? I have seen them both in an egg, said Caspian. We call it going bad in Narnia. This trade must stop, you know, this great response to this metaphor of progress as as this sort of like indefinite growing up, right? And, and Lewis always, of course, prefers the idea of, uh, well, as time passes, things also go bad.
2: And an idea of progress is you actually want to progress to something better, not just simply keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes back to this idea several times in Mere Christianity, when he says that people might say that he's suggesting that we're trying to turn the clock back. In book one, chapter five, he says, would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back? And that if the clock is wrong, is very often a very sensible thing to do. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where we want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, as the Lone Islands did with regards to slavery, uh, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. That's what Lewis understands by real progress, not what Gumpus is offering and particularly not uh, in bureaucracy, because that was one of the things that Lewis really hated. If you read the screw tape Letters, how does he imagine hell? Lots of nice offices with a with a very deep lowerarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know,
0: a, a total managerial state that is set up in the Lone Islands, right? Just basically bureaucracy. His interaction here with Gumpus um, is to uh, relieve him of his office. My lord Byrne, come here! And before Gumpus quite realized what was happening, Byrne was kneeling with his hands between the king hands and taking the oath to govern the Lone Islands in accordance with the old customs rights usages and laws of Narnia. And Caspian said, I think we have had enough of governors and made Bernard Duke, the Duke of the Lone Islands. So we're done with governors. We're done with bureaucrats. Uh, we're going to have, you know, titled people, which of course, you know, uh, I'm sure Lewis would be the first to admit, well, yeah, that can go wrong too. But yeah, it's a corrective to this sort of verging on modern state of affairs that you have going at, at, at the Lone
1: Islands. I was just thinking, but it's also like the nice in that hideous strength, mm-hmm. because I just finish listening to the face trilogy recently it's amazing the part where half the book is taken up with people saying a whole bunch of stuff and then you're like what did you just say and like you never get down to what they're they talk around the issue and it's just like that's such a good metaphor for bureaucracy i was just thinking of that as another example
2: as anyone that's worked in office knows when there's a problem Let's form a committee. let's yeah. let's have that committee yeah. have some meetings. We can talk about it. We can send out some minutes. yeah, yeah. so many so many meetings will happen because then we can oh, well, say we're doing at... something. Well, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's comfort. Yeah. We have minutes. We have proof that we've been doing something. yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah
0: it's funny too because people tend to view like ceremony and pomp and things like that as empty but this sort of efficiency that we have in the yeah yeah um, the the sort of efficiency that we have in the modern world is often pretty empty as well and and it fails to bring anyone to a state of humility um, in the way that you know pomp and circumstance and things like that could do Um, Mm. not, not that it always did point, Eustace has mainly been an object of fun for Lewis, someone whose worldview he's satirizing, both in Picture of Gumpus and, and this sort of modern state, pseudo-modern state that's happening in Lone Islands. And also in Eustace's own words, right? When he's recording this diary and just getting everything completely backwards and is just insufferable. And then they get to an island after a storm at sea, I should say. They need to repair their mast. They need to repair the ship. So they stop at this island. It's this gloomy island. Eustace wanders off and, and sees a dragon. And he doesn't know that it's a dragon because of course, as Lewis likes to remind us again and again and again, he has read all the wrong books and he sees the dragon die. He checks to make sure it's dead. He finds its lair. It's full of treasure. He suddenly has all of these ideas about the things that he can do with this money. And so we see this sort of like appetite this modern appetite for the means to create change without a like terribly good vision of what that change should be. And so he just wants to modernize everything in Narnia. Something and, which
2: Edmund said he was going to do when he yeah. was going to the white witch's house.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like he took the character of Edmund, right, and just dialed it up to 11 <laughs> Like just like you know, he said, okay, I know I said the thing in in the line of the wardrobe about he went wrong when he started going to that new school and all that sort of thing, but I'm really going to explore that with Eustace, <laughs> right? go after modern education and notions of modern education, you know, having having improved means to deteriorated ends, right? Um, that, that That's so characteristic. But yeah, he, um, he puts a bracelet on his arm, goes to sleep, wakes up, here's what happens. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he had moved it an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him and a little on his right, Where the moonlight fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. He knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It had moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course, the brute had a mate and it's lying beside me. For several minutes, he did not dare to move a muscle. He saw two thin columns of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight. Just as there had been smoke coming from the other dragon's nose before it died, this was so alarming that he held his breath. The two columns of smoke vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again, but even yet, he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided he would edge very cautiously to his left, "'and try to creep out of the cave. "'Perhaps the creature was asleep. "'And anyway, it was his only chance. "'But of course, before he edged to the left, "'he looked to the left. "'Oh, horror! "'There was a dragon's claw on that side, too. "'No one will blame Eustace "'if at this moment he shed tears. "'He was surprised at the size of his own tears "'as he saw them splashing onto the treasure in front of him. "'They also seemed strangely hot. "'Steam went up from them, but there was no good crying.' He must try to crawl out from between the two dragons. He began extending his right arm. The dragon's 4 and claw on his right went through exactly the same motion. Then he thought he would try his left. The dragon limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerve broke and he simply made a bolt for it. There was such a clatter and rasping and clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out of the cave that he thought they were both following him. He daren't look back. He rushed to the pool. The twisted shape of the dead dragon lying in the moonlight would have been enough to frighten anyone, but now he hardly noticed it. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. And why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent toward the water, he thought for a second that yet another dragon was staring up at him out of the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. The dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt of it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Yeah, it's just so vivid and evocative. I I'm, I'm not sure what else, you know, I can I can really say about it, but it's uh it's 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 great. Do you all have any thoughts about why exactly this turns Eustace into a
2: dragon? I don't know if we can necessarily explain how it happens other than magic. But it's an externalization of what's been there all along. We've been told that he's had dragonish thoughts in his heart. We've heard the interior monologue in his diary. And he's now come to this island where a magical uh, dragon's horde has now manifested that and shown him on the outside what he actually has always been on the inside. If my co-host Andrew was here, he would say that this was an inversion of the Narcissus myth. As Eustace runs and sees his reflection, doesn't see beauty, but he sees ugliness, rather like uh, Oral in Till We Have Faces, when she sees her reflection and then weeps, I am unget. He's, he's finally brought low. He's seeing what sort of person he really is. Because throughout the story, Eustace has had a very high opinion of himself, and now he can't really do that anymore. He's, he's going to be forced to have to deal with what kind of person he really is.
0: Yeah, there's this uh, there's this there's this great medieval romance. Um, I believe it's 15th century called Sir Gauther. It's about the son of the devil. His mother is seduced by a devil, an incubus. He is born and he you know has these like horrible jagged teeth. Kills a bunch of nursemaids, um, you know, by by nursing on them and grows up and, you know, rapes and pillages and does all of these horrible things without any sort of sense of repentance. And then one day someone tells him that his father is not actually his father, that, his, that he's actually like basically a devil spawn. And that prompts him to go on a pilgrimage to seek forgiveness from the Pope for all the things he's done, which he receives after um, his penance is to. Sit under a table uh, and gnaw on bones with the dogs. This this sudden knowledge of oh my gosh, this is what I really am is so powerful to him that it actually affects repentance. Um, and I think you see a, a similar sort of thing with uh, with Eustace here, um, where we're becoming a beast becoming that thing that he's really been inside and, and being seen as a beast, right? He's so he's so embarrassed of the way that he looks and of the way that he um, now appears because it's a manifestation of, of of who he is deep inside, who he's always been. But um, And described
2: as such uh, regularly in the yeah. text, it was about him being beastly to the others. It's, yep. Yep. it's an old, old, older form that we don't typically use these days, but it describes perfectly how he was being
0: yeah and it's it's ironic of course as well that he's uh again and again describing the Pevenseys and caspian as fiends in human shape and he's been a fiend in human shape this whole time and now he can finally be a human in a fiends shape
1: that's great i never thought of it that way before but that that is everything you guys are saying is great whenever
0: he says fiends in human shape i always think of pg woodhouse it's it's just really hard not because that's the sort of that's the sort of thing that, uh, that like, Bertie and his friends in the Jeeves books uh, would, would say is calling people fiends in human shape. But Lewis, you know, takes that expression and, of course, just, like, kind of turns it over and, uh, and, and has fun with it. book because we've kind of said and hinted at and alluded to this book anticipates star trek's own tendency to send its highest ranking personnel on exploratory missions uh, which could be deadly and, and this is a tendency i don't want to give star trek too much flack for this because this is something that like old adventure stories have always done it's odysseus who goes on the you know on the on the most dangerous missions in, in the odyssey which is one of the oldest pieces of literature we have right nobody wants to read about like one of Odysseus' men going, exploring the underworld, for example, or whatever. They want to read about Odysseus doing it. But yeah.
2: Back uh, at the ship, updating a spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or a graph and chart. I wonder if we could propose a Star Trek-like show featuring Caspian in space, but better than Treasure Planet. Uh, (laughs) Maybe maybe as Lewis envisioned space. At what point in space do we come to Aslan's country? by the way. Is, is is it that sort of a country?
2: I don't think you can just walk into it. Yeah, one does
0: not. One does not just walk into <laughs> this. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um. Uh, or take a, a spaceship and we've talked about this you know throughout this this episode uh the, the sort of similarity to star trek right this sort of episodic thing but in some ways star trek is so concerned with progress right um it's it's so much harold and alberta's kind of way of thinking except updated for the 60s or for the 90s if it's the next generation and then i stopped watching after that um but um <laughs> Earth is a utopia in Star Trek because they've got beyond their silly feuding and their silly differences about things. And, and there's this one world economy and things are working really great. So let's go out and observe other cultures, export our model that's so great for us on, on Earth. And it occurs to me that like, well, Narnia apparently is in a pretty great place but for like pretty different reasons, right? Uh, they They haven't... Evolved. They haven't progressed. Uh, It's it's in a good place because they've hewed to morality that works, aligned with the good, that is aligned with absolute good. And yeah, it'd be fun to think about how you know how you could create a sort of like Narnian sci-fi where Narnia is like a kind of federation of different planets with talking beasts and dryads and things like that, and they all kind of hang out together. I was just wondering if you all had any, any ideas uh, of, of that or something different.
2: Well, the talking beasts could be the uh, animals in the constellations. So, you know, you could go to a cluster of stars where everybody's a bear.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're all very sleepy. The... And they
1: shook their push.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that this plot of being taken as a slave, I'm sure that's happened in Star Trek, right? Um... I,
2: I mean, I the, the thing that jumps to my mind is the episode called Spock's Brain, where mm-hmm. it's the, the women come on board and they press a button on their wrist things and everybody passes out. And then when they wake up, Spock's brain has been taken out of his head and put into the ship and it's running everything. You've got him on complete life support. Was he dead? He was worse than dead. What do you mean? Jim. Come on, Bones. What's the mystery? His
1: brain is gone.
0: Is that, is that the original series? Mm-hmm. hmm That was such a trippy series. Like, some of the ideas <laughs> that they came up with, it was just so much more fun than uh, than The Next Generation.
2: Uh, I went back and re-watched The Next Generation about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And those early seasons, man, they are way rougher than I remember.
0: Yeah. You um, know why? So this is why? crazy. Gene Roddenberry, I think that, that was the guy that came mm-hmm. up with it. He yeah, insisted on complete creative control of the next generation. And his ideas of progress precluded any kind of conflict between the characters because the idea is humanity's evolved beyond that, right? <laughs> so, so How like do you make that into a TV show. Exactly, it's like trying to make a show about heaven, right? Um, uh, which, which I think would be a little more interesting than progressive utopia, but but still like really tough to do if there's no conflict between between characters. So yeah, like all the conflict has to. Come Come from the worlds that they visit and and they have to like kind of shake their heads and be like mm, i'm so glad we've moved beyond that
2: um, which which really undermines the very genre as to why these odyssey like stories mm-hmm. are usually so entertaining because it doesn't necessarily have to be about one big overarching antagonist it is about the journey and the development of our characters you know, that the antagonist is the journey are yeah. they going to make it home Okay. And are they gonna come back better men and women than they left? And so if you try and take out any form of development, what's left?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember listening to a podcast about this, uh, and I forget which one it was, but yeah, they're they were like, Yeah, we really fought as the creative team, as like the script writers, we fought Gene Roddenberry like crazy to you know try to get him to give a little bit on this vision of like, well, nobody has nobody has interpersonal problems because you know the world's perfect now and we we've we've, we've we've all evolved and uh apparently the first few seasons they didn't get him to budge and then either i don't know if he died or
2: i think he's getting else. sick at that point yeah
0: now. yeah and then they managed to make it a little more interesting
2: Hello old men could be the klingons
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no i was thinking that too right like, <laughs> there could be like this great you know calarmenian empire right like there is in narnia right and the um and the type of space that there is would be more like deep heaven right uh the space trilogy except it'd probably need to be a little less serene again because a show does need conflict so maybe we disrupt the idea that only one planet has imperfect stuff and and sort of spread it around (laughs) a little bit but uh yeah i think it could be fun
2: was one, one thing I did yeah. want to read. It's 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 my one of my favorite sections from the portion of the book that we've read. And it's when they rescue all of the slaves and they discover that all of the children have been sold, except Eustace. Uh-huh. And they uh-huh. ask where he is. And Pug responds, oh, him. Oh, take him and welcome. Glad to have him off my hands. Never seen such a dog on the market in all my born days. Priced him at five crescents in the end and nobody would have him. Threw him in free with other lots and still no one would have him wouldn't touch him wouldn't look at him tax bring out sulky (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, that's pretty great he's probably not thrilled to uh be sold as a slave in the first place but he's probably even less thrilled to uh have no one even
2: be wanted
1: (laughs) no one wanting to buy him
0: just goes to show you that if you practice the liberal arts and go in for traditional ideas of what makes humanity humanity. You are more marketable, even as a, even as a slave, than uh, than you would be if you simply follow hollow fads about progress. Uh, so, I think there's a moral there for all of us.
3: this episode where within my He's dad has two of his children as the guest to the podcast
0: let's bring in our little our littlest guest
1: hey adriana
0: this is what's your name what's your name
1: say your name
3: adriana
0: very good so i want you to tell me what you think of these pictures what do you think of this picture what's going on
3: that's a dragon.
0: Yeah, that's right. Very good. And what's what's happening here? What's, what's this boy doing? Is he being a good boy or a bad boy?
3: A bad boy. How come? Because see the mouse.
0: What's he doing to the mouse?
3: He's throwing
0: the mouse away. Yeah, he's holding him by his tail, huh? Not very nice. The mouse <laughs> is very angry. Now let's look at another picture here. What's going on here in this picture? Can you tell?
3: What is it called?
0: I don't know. What's going on here?
3: What is that called?
0: That's a ship. What's happening to the ship?
3: There's a there's a wave. Yeah. And a storm.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Okay, here's another one. What are these guys? What do they look like?
3: I don't know.
0: Do they look normal or do they look kind of funny? They
3: look kind of funny.
0: Why do they look funny? What looks funny about them?
3: Because because they're playing in the
0: trampolinium. Oh, <laughs> they're
3: playing in
0: the <laughs> how many How many hands do they have?
3: Two.
0: How many feet do they have? One. Yeah, isn't that silly? Yeah. So how do they get around when they have only one foot?
3: Because.
0: How do they move around?
3: Because.
0: What do they have to do to get from one place to another?
3: I don't know.
0: Well, what would you have to do if you only had one foot? Pretend you only have one foot. What do you have to do to get around?
3: Okay.
0: What do you have to do here? I want you to stand up, put your feet together like you have one foot, and try to walk over there with just one foot. What do you have to do? Jump! Yeah, that's right. That's yeah! Right. All right, hey, come over here. Come over here. One more thing to show you. They're sailing, or they're they're taking a boat. See? And the boat's leaving a trail. They're
3: taking a the boat! Yeah.
0: You don't need to do that <laughs> that loud. Who are they talking to here? Who are the kids talking to? The lamb. Wow.
3: <laughs> the lamb. Yeah.
0: What do you think? You know, the lamb in this in this chapter turns into a lion.
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Do you know Do you know about somebody else who's called a lion and a lamb?
3: What? Who? The Lion King. <laughs>
0: I knew it was a well, because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place, and then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. "'Oh, that's all right,' said I. "'It only means I had another smaller suit on "'underneath the first one, "'and I'll have to get out of it, too.' "'So I scratched and tore again, "'and this underskin peeled off beautifully, "'and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one "'and went down to the well for my bathe.' "'Well, exactly the same thing happened again, "'and I thought to myself, "'Oh, dear, however many skins have I got to take off? "'For I was longing to bathe my leg.' So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if, if you've ever plucked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd... Done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, became perfectly delicious and as soon as i started swimming and splashing i found that all the pain had gone from my arm and then i saw why i would turned into a boy again you'd think me simply phony if i told you how i felt about my own arms i know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with caspians but i was so glad to see them after a bit the lion took me out and dressed me dressed you with his paws well i don't exactly remember that bit But he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Hello and welcome back. This is our second episode of The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, where I have with me Eric Geddes, a collector and bibliophile out in Frosty, Arizona. How are you doing, Eric? Oh, I'm doing well. Good, good, good. Eric rejoins me again today as we continue to sail our bark towards the Crystal Sea. I guess you could say Crystal Sea, right? It's got lilies at a certain point, but uh, for a while it's fairly crystal-like. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to hit as many high points as we can of Voyager the Dawn Treader during this conversation, but listeners, if... There are any that we leave out and you're like, ah, I really wanted to hear like more of the podcast on this moment of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader or this moment of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Please do feel free to contact me at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com and feel free to come on the show and talk about your favorite parts of Voyage of the Dawn Treader because there's so much, this is for many people, their favorite Narnia book. Every chapter, I feel like I could spend an entire hour on. So so please let me know if there's more that you would like to talk about. So a bit of background for Voyager of the Dawn Treader before we get going. It was published in 1952, dedicated to Jeffrey Barfield, Owen Barfield's son. It's the third book in Lewis's Narnia series. If anybody tells you differently, just abruptly end the conversation and walk away. This is the this is the first tale in which only two of the Pevensies, Edmund and Lucy, play a part because Peter and Susan have become, as we found out at the end of Prince Caspian, too old to visit Narnia. It's also the first tale in which you get a non-Pevency earthling, human, son of Adam, coming into Narnia from the outside world, the Pevenseys' awful cousin Eustace. The Voyager of the Non-Treader is a departure from the other books, those other books being so far, again the the wardrobe and prince caspian for a number of reasons less time has passed in narnia than in the previous books it's only been a few years in caspian's time whereas when you went from the lion witch and the wardrobe to prince caspian it had been centuries and centuries there's also no single bad guy there's no miraz there's no jadis the white witch instead the kids are kind of their own enemies and caspian is as well the only one who's closer to uh, you're a good guy with no no shadowy or bad qualities. It seems to be cheap, but yeah, no no great evil baddie. Instead, it's episodic. From chapter to chapter, they face a different threat. Now, what we've just read is the episode that dramatizes this the best, right? That, you know, they fa- they do face external threats, but they also face internal threats, right? And that's, that's the adventure of Eustace at Dragon Island, where by putting on an enchanted piece of treasure, Eustace becomes a dragon himself. And we've just read really what's the most famous part of this book, where Eustace is undragoned, as Edmund puts it. When he's undragoned, that, that's really, for a lot of people, the best salvation image from this book, or at least the best sanctification image. The... The moment when Eustace allows Aslan to change him instead of trying to change himself. Now, this is significant because Eustace has been, in Edmund's words, a record stinker up until this point. Not a nice kid, not a nice kid at all. And he's had something to say about every good thing and bad thing that's happened to them on this trip and doesn't really seem to appreciate anything finally he runs off by himself on an island and everybody ends up looking for him while he falls asleep in a cave with dragon's treasure on his arm thinking about how he'll be able to have power over everybody as a result of stealing this treasure and lo and behold wakes up as a dragon suddenly realizes oh no i actually kind of like people and want to be around people and does his dragony best to help them all out. And after some time they begin to realize, well, shoot, if we keep moving, if we, if we sail on and, and complete the quest, what are we going to do with Eustace? He can't just fly forever up, you know, up above the ship, but there's not really room for him on the ship. And finally, of course, Edmund sees Eustace in Eustace form again but he seems quite different from even how he was as a boy, to say nothing of how he was as a dragon when he tells this story that we read at the top. So, Eric, what, what resonates with you about about this portrayal of Eustace's undragoning? Does this work, do you think, as a better image for how God saves us than the image of Edmund being ransomed from the White Witch? Is it more like complementary? How does this compare with the way Edmund is saved in the first book?
1: Well, I definitely think that this is a pretty clear analogy for baptism, which, of course, a baptism, you go down one way and you come up another way spiritually. But I think this is, like, kids can totally understand this. And I think people who weren't even exposed to Christianity should be able to, because it's external. The change is external. So you're going from a greedy boy into a dragon, and then you you try and change back, but that never works if you do it by yourself. But you need, kind of in the same way you need him, to ransom you from your own stupid decisions or whatever. Yeah, so that's what kind of sticks out to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that reminder about baptism, I think that's so key that we are changed in water, and that the water has this symbolic value. I mean, it's interesting. This is the clearest allusion to baptism in all of the Narnia books, at least that I can think of. And what's interesting is that it it comes in a book about sailing and exploring water. I have no idea what to make of that, but there's a way in which, in Eustace's case, this baptism is about cleansing, right? And a kind of cleansing change that he needs to take off his clothes or take off his skin order to have that change be affected and kind of comes to the end of himself. And at the same time, of course, you have the characters in Narnia all coming to the end of the world and coming to a place where their own, their own efforts can't really get them any further. It's brought them some way, but they have to be taken the rest of the way into Aslan's country entirely. And Aslan's instrumental in, in both cases. A lot of people... I think quite rightly emphasize the connection between this and baptism and this and sanctification and this and the fact that we cannot be good enough that God needs to work in us to restore the true human image that we've corrupted yeah. through baptism. What's what's the, you know? Buried with him in baptism, raised again in newness of life in some traditions. I don't know that would have been what was said in Lewis's tradition. This idea of baptism being regenerative and and being a kind of death, right? That we're dying to our own attempts to make ourselves into good people, but rather surrendering. And then that, even though it hurts to surrender. I think also, though, up until this point... A lot of this has been about Eustace's education, that he's a singularly miseducated young man, that his head has been filled with all the wrong sort of books and goofy progressive ideas that mostly have to do with judging other people and finding fault with them for not being advanced enough or modern enough or whatever else, and knowing a lot of facts but having very little wisdom and being prone to just complain a lot when he finds himself on an adventure. And uh, it's interesting that you have this kind of re-education of Eustace through adventure and through even hardship that happens on adventure. And uh, I wonder if part of what that sort of an education does is it allows Eustace not to be safe so that so that he can find himself in these situations where he has to encounter his real self and run up against the fact that he is close to irredeemable, right? And and it's at that moment that he knows that he needs some kind of intervention. Now I don't want to allegorize it too much. I mean, it, he happens to be turned into a dragon, and that's not something that occurs in the ordinary course of education. But that Dragonishness. Even Lewis makes the connection between that and greed, right? sleeping on a dragon's hoard, having dragonish thoughts in his mind, he'd become a dragon himself. So, yeah, this seems to be the major kind of moment in Eustace's re-education that allows the rest of the stuff to find purchase in him, so that he gets made wiser by it. But at the same time, even the stuff leading up to this. Where he had to experience hardship, where it was hard for him and it was unpleasant for him, it seems to have at least brought him to this point, right? Where he's realized kind of what a thoroughly awful person he is. So it's kind of negative education at first and then positive education in order to undo the poor education he's received from his parents and other people in Cambridge. But that may be that may be putting too much
1: on it. Was he, was Lewis... The chair of medieval literature at this point, Cambridge.
0: So 1954, one year after this book was published, <laughs> Lewis was awarded the chair in medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge. And they founded that post with him in mind. So <gasps> while while he's busy being an Oxfordian <laughs> and insulting Cambridge, they're thinking, well, maybe we should try to bring that Lewis guy over here.
1: You got to make him turn his satirical wit on Oxford. That's right.
0: That's right. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're more Cambridge and please, if anybody here has gone to either Oxford or Cambridge, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this is what I think is true. Anyway, Oxford is the, is the more conservative school. Cambridge was a little more experimental and I guess maybe Cambridge didn't mind. Having a lay theologian as their chair of medieval and Renaissance literature in the same way that stodgy old Oxford might have, but yeah, that's kind of fun. I'm sure there's more written about that somewhere, and the, these kind of eternal wars that that go on between the two universities that I'm I'm just not privy to, but yeah, that's pretty awesome. All right, so Lewis or Lewis Eustace is is undragoned. He's free to go and from that point on really the arc of eustace's character not much else happens until the next book yeah when it's when it's him and jill exploring the you know the underground realm the silver chair but after that point you have various lessons being learned by various characters different people being awful in in different ways and occasionally in some chapters everyone's fine and it's just an external threat that they have to overcome so I thought I'd just go through some of these questions, and Eric, you could sound off on on any that strike you. This is a book, again, that starts with a good deal of satire, right? Lewis really sort of finds his voice in this book, and I'd argue it's partly because he gets to start just completely satirizing the heck out of Eustace Clarence Scrub and uh, there are a lot of funny moments in this book. After the point with the with the undragoning of Eustace can you think of any moments that, that you found
1: humorous? Well, it's kind of funny and kind of weird when you don't know what's going on, but the duffel punch just that they have one foot and they're bouncing up and down and like the chief says something and then everybody else is like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly yeah. right yeah.
0: Yeah, it's funny, and it's also really throws you off, right, as as you're reading. In the same way that it throws them off, you have no idea what these invisible things are or where these voices are coming from or whatever else, and then the way that they speak is just bizarre. They come to an island. They're surrounded with these voices, and... There are these impressions that are getting made in the sand and in the ground. They realize they have these invisible people surrounding them. And the invisible people say that there's an evil magician living in the house on the island and that they had to slave away for the magician. And he turned them ugly when they were beautiful before, just as good looking as you could imagine. And they sent someone of their own number to go and find the magician's book and recite a spell to make them invisible. And now they're tired of being invisible and they want Lucy to go back up into the magician's house and say the spell to make hidden things visible. Their dynamic is there's one big man, so to speak, who's sort of in charge, the chief Right, and every time he says anything, they all agree. Oh, right, you are chief. Right, you are. So they're they're asking. well, how do we know that you could even threaten us? We can't see you, so we don't know that you really pose a threat. And then they throw a spear and hit a tree, and, and suddenly they can see the spear. That's a spear. That is said the chief voice. That it is, chief. That it is said the others. You couldn't have put it better. And it came from my hand. The chief voice continued. They got visible when they leave us. So every time he says anything, they're like, that's right, that's right. Couldn't have said it better. Oh, you're on a roll today, chief. Again, here, Lewis seems to be satirizing something, right? Like, I'm assuming it's the tendency of people who are anti-hierarchical when they reject their ruler to just appoint a new person and agree with everything that the new person comes up with. But it seems to be... Sort of a okay. Well, if you toss out your rightful ruler, Korayakin, right, and you won't listen to him, that impulse inside of you to be told what to do by someone is going to be strong still, especially because you've never been educated into being able to use any sort of discernment yourself to figure things out. But yeah, the way the way he paints them is pretty humorous, for sure. They end up, by the way, the, the duffelpuds end up being revealed as one-legged dwarfs who can jump all over the place. And the first look Lucy has, the first the first view she has of them is at noontime when they're all sleeping. And the way that they sleep is they lie down on their backs and they shade themselves with their giant foot, right? And Lucy says, oh, they look just like mushrooms. So Lewis is getting that from a pretty long existing medieval and renaissance legend that stretches all the way back to the greeks about the strange and monstrous peoples that they believed existed at the borders of the world there's this one type of person called the shiapods, which just means like shade foot because that's exactly what they would do according to starting with uh, starting with pliny there are all kinds of different monstrous races there are dog heads there are people who don't have heads but have their faces in their chest there are people with really long ears and they wrap themselves with their ears and then there oh. are these uh, sheapods the shadefoots who have really really big feet and if you look up s c i a p o d you can find some like renaissance and medieval illustrations of these guys but but basically you know, this was transmitted to Latin writers, transmitted to medieval writers. And it was just kind of known that this was one of the strange races of people that were at the edge of the world. And so Lewis is taking this thing that would have been known by Renaissance and medieval scholars and transplanting it into the book. And the origin story of the Shiopods in The Voyage of Don Shredder* Treader is that Yes, they are still at the edge of things, right, at the edge of the world, right? So they'd still be at the edge of maps, just like they're on the edge of old maps of the earth that the medievals would make and and the Renaissance folks would make. But they were apparently a group of very common dwarves, according to Kariakin, right? And uh, Kariakin, for whatever reason, decided that it would be much cooler if they all had one leg. And so, (laughs) so he gave them all... He made, I guess, their legs join and their foot join into one foot. So they get around by jumping. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure that Karaikin's totally blameless here because it seems, you know, if they didn't really want to be changed into one-legged dwarves, maybe that wasn't the kindest thing in the world.
1: Well, it's some kind of discipline, right? Yeah. I I don't know, like it's probably not the best, but as like as a father, I'm sure you have to, even if you don't want to, like discipline your kids if they're if they're happy
0: Yeah, that's true. I I don't take away one of their legs. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <That's> uh, <good. laughs> but yeah, I mean that that seems to be. You're absolutely right. Caria seems to play a kind of Prospero role, right? In the Tempest, you have. Prospero, who's the rightful Duke of Milan, who's been exiled to this island wrongly in the case of the Tempest, but he's in charge of these two strange creatures, right? One is Ariel, who's a spirit, and one is Caliban, who's a a kind of a savage, bestial, half human, half something else, right? And there have been lots of lots of renditions of the play afterwards, right? That that have kind of questioned this setup and questioned whether Prospero should be in charge of of Caliban, but uh, but it, it seems like in Shakespeare's mind it was very much well Caliban only thinks about his stomach and his sex drive, so of course it's good for Prospero, who's educated, right, to be forcing Caliban to carry water and chop wood for him and stuff like that because this is helping Caliban to become something higher, right? And there are all kinds of creepy and tricky analogies that can be made from that place that people have made and not entirely unwarranted, you know, that they've kind of found fault with Prospero. But but Karaikin seems to be a Prospero figure, right? They're both magicians and they're both in charge of people who don't seem to be very good at looking after themselves?
1: Maybe it's like, well, people, I guess not in Narnia, but in our world, of course, people are higher than animals. But you could even maybe say like it's an Adam job. Like God gave the animals to Adam to name and take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they can't, they couldn't for whatever reason take care of themselves.
0: Yeah, and I think I think part of the way that Lewis viewed it, at least in the problem of pain, was that humans kind of mediated grace to the animal kingdom. Um because they're the image of God, that's how God orders this sort of physical kingdom is through the people he created as his representatives. Yeah. And so you have a similar thing going on with Karaikin, even though, as we learn later from Ramandu, Karaikin used to be a star and did something bad and we're not told what, but uh, part of his punishment is to be put there on that Island and made to govern this group of dwarves called the Duffers. Right. And yeah. of course they, they start getting the part of the reason they're called the Duffel Puds is because first they're called monopods, which is another name in the, you know, in the sort of monstrous races lore for the Shapods just meaning one-footed, right? And they get the name like all bungled up and start calling themselves Duffelpuds. The other parallel to this is Circe and the Odyssey. You have lots of, lots of Odyssey parallels here, but what happens with Circe is when Odysseus and his men land on this island, and this island too has a house that's quiet with smoke coming up from it. His men get out of the boat, They go into the house and Cersei greets them and says, oh, so, you know, so glad you could make it. Please rest, eat some food. And they start, you know, gobbling up the food and she turns them all into pigs. And then Odysseus has to come and save them. And she ends up being, you know, friendly because he forces her to, to change his men back as well, right? So there again, you have this motif a single enchanter living on an island, changing the form of things, right? I think, I think Krykin's a little bit more like, like Prospero probably, uh, especially because he has a book and Prospero has a book too. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating few chapters. And again, I'm not sure what I think of the uh, turning the duffers into one legged duffelpuds, but you know. It's also like where Lewis is doing satire and then it slips back into a kind of child story where, of course, children would prefer the dwarves to be jumping around on one leg, you know, but it kind of lets Kraiken off the hook uh, in a weird way. What are the parts in The Voice of the Treader that filled you with the most wonder?
1: the part that really like signals to me that okay we're we're not in Narnia anymore we're like getting closer to heaven is first Ramandu and his daughter and just And then you find out he's a star, and it's like, whoa, like, stars are actually people here? Yeah. And the line that sticks out to me, it's done really, really well in the Focus on the Family version. But Eustace says, in our world, stars are a huge ball of flaming gas. And Andrew just says, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but what it is made of. Hmm. And I just that really hit me, and it still hits me. Like, yeah, I guess they're made of gas and everything, but of course, Lewis makes them into people. But they're not just physical, right? The-
0: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the that's one of the great parts. And again, like this is what this is part of the reason I think this is about, you know, this book and the whole Narnia series really is about correcting problems in education. I've definitely encountered this with often very bright students, and and they just want to like take the stuff apart and see how it works. But the tendency then is to be reductive about it and say, well, all this is, is this. And And Lewis, of course, goes on and on about this in The Abolition of Man, where he says to see through everything is the same as to be blind. I think in some ways this is, one place where Eustace is being retrained about how to think about things, right? Because he's very apt in, in terms of the sciences. He understands more about science than like most of the other people do. Most of the other provinces even, even though he's younger than them. But there's there's this tendency to conflate what something is with its physical properties, right? As as though, there's other, as though there's nothing more to something than that, which of course Lewis knows very well that if that's the case, then even that observation, like nothing can actually be said to be true. If all we are is physical matter, then who's to say anything about that physical matter aligns with any accurate vision of the world? So that reductiveness chips away at itself. It kind of saws off the branch that it's sitting on like a cartoon character. So this I think is an important moment in Eustace's education. And then he goes further. And this is what education is meant to do to bring you further and further to the point where you're not just knowing about or guessing about the end of all things, right? But you are joyfully participating in the end of all things and knowing it not just in the sense of doing about it, but, but, but embracing it. Right. And, and, and being at that, at at that place where you come into contact with the beautiful and ultimately with, with Aslan. But I love that moment too, where he talks about how even in your world, that's not what a star is. This is something that lewis and tolkien and williams and barfield all in their various different ways we're banging on about all the time right which is the essence of something it's a tautology to simply say a tree is a tree is a tree a rock is a rock is a rock it doesn't doesn't tell you anything about that thing right and and if all you do is say you know it a tree a, a tree is made up of these fibers and, and and this thing and this thing well yeah you're you're finding stuff out about a tree but is it the deepest truth about a tree does it really tell someone what a tree is or does myth about trees tell someone what a tree is right and which of those views of trees is going to lead to them actually being preserved right is yeah. it is it the view where like this is something that is precious that that we get from folklore, that we got from myth, that we have in stories, the trees in George mcdonald's Fantasties. you know, there's there's so much that's been passed on through story. But if you don't read any of the right books, you're going to end up thinking, "Well, oh, trees just like inert matter that I could do what I want with," right?
1: Yeah, I I think there was one point a while ago when you guys did the Prince Caspian episode. I think you said something like the trees have been here longer and they are not participating in worship, but they are part of glorifying God.
0: Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about this this principle that everything is always actively glorifying God by being what it is. And humans miss out on that because we're fallen, but there, there's a kind of praise that's being offered up at all times, by all things in creation, and obviously, if we take the reductive view that Eustace does, we can't really access that because it, it's just it's just matter. And it's not that like we think that trees are necessarily sentient in the way that we are, right? They're not, but they are creatures because they're created to to give God praise. Same with stars and.
1: Which kind of I. When you were talking there, I just thought of like Madeline Lengue or Wind in the Door or mm-hmm. something like that. That's that's very much like the climax of that book is participate in the dance of creation, all creation, by being what you are.
0: Yeah, the Lengue books are great for that. You know, it's, it's not that like I don't think we should figure out what a star is made of or yeah. or what a tree is made of, or or even that we shouldn't use parts of nature to help us live healthier and oh, yeah. longer and, and, and all of that stuff. But there should yeah. be a kind of gratitude and there shouldn't be a, a sense that either utility is everything, right? Oh, what can I use this for? So I can yeah. advance my own designs without like a thought of gratitude Nor should there be simply a sense of, oh, well, all this is, is this, right? A kind of simplification, because that robs us of the primary ingredient of of joy and of a healthy, happy life, which is is wonder and and, and gratitude. And if we don't have those things, and if if our heart is dead to the things around us that God's given us, then we're, well, you know, just, just like... People say in Ramandu's Island, we're we're like beasts, right? So you have that second sleeper. And apparently the three sleepers around the table, the reason they fell asleep is because one of them reached for the knife that was used to kill Aslan that's, that's there at the end of the world on, on Aslan's table. Because they got in a quarrel about whether to keep going and go all the way to the world's end or whether to go back to sail back to Narnia. And you can hear remnants of that quarrel when they when they go up to them and try trying to shake them out of the enchanted sleep. It must be an enchanted sleep, said Lucy. I felt the moment we landed on this island that it was full of magic. Oh, do you think we have perhaps come here to break it? we can try said caspian and began shaking the nearest of the three sleepers for a moment everyone thought he was going to be successful if the man breathed hard and muttered i'll go eastward no more so that's the one who wants to turn back right but he mm-hmm. sank back almost at once into a yet deeper sleep than before that is his heavy head sagged a few inches lower toward the table and all efforts to rouse him again were useless with a second it was much the same went we born to live like animals get to the east while well, you've a chance lands beyond the sun and sank down so that's the second right who's saying we're not born to live like animals right and and you get this sort of motif throughout this right where you have this separation between the people who whose god is their stomach who serve their appetites and the people who want to go forward and seek adventure right the people who are alive to The wonder of the world, and who want to, and who desire it, and who desire to know more of it. And then, of course, the third one says, "Mustard, please," and slept hard, right? So so then, there's the one who, who it's not even that he wants to go home to Narnia; he just wants to eat, right? Again and again, you get some version of this speech. Of, I don't know about you all, but I, I'm going forward, right? And this guy Mm -hmm. saying, "We weren't meant to live like beasts." because that's a difference. You know, that moment where you have the you know, even even in your world that's not what a star is, only what it's made of, right? That that clarifying rebuke to materialism. You have that sort of be part of the conflicts throughout, really from really from the time that Ripcheep wants to go to Dark Island cuz no one's been there and everyone else is like no, Cheap, we really don't want to go any further. But what manner of use would it be ploughing through that blackness? asked Drinian. And often you have Drinian and Rince and Rinolf voicing this point of view of the common sailors who who like yeah. mostly want to be safe, which you can't really blame them for. It's their job, right? To to be a sailor. Use replied Cheap. Use, Captain! if by use you mean filling our bellies or our purses i confess it will be no use at all so far as i know we did not set sail to look for things useful but to seek honour an adventure and here is as great an adventure as ever i heard of and here if we turn back no little impeachment of all our honours several of the sailors said things under their breath that sounded like honour be blowed but caspian said oh bother you reaper cheap i almost wish we'd left you at home All right. If you put it that way, I suppose we have to go on unless Lucy would rather not. And in this case, Reaper Cheap is right. Right. Like it's good that they go into the blackness because they rescue one of Caspian's men. Afterwards, he wants to continue to explore the blackness. And they say, no, let's let's not. So we have a row, row, bellowed Caspian. This is after they start like getting the nightmares right row row bellowed caspian pull for our lives Is a head right drinian you can say what you like reaper cheap there are some things no man can face because only reaper cheap remained remained unmoved right your majesty your majesty he said are you going to tolerate this mutiny this poltroonery this is panic this is a rout and then caspian says the bit i just read there are some things no man can face it is then my good fortune not to be a man replied Reepercheep with a very stiff bow, right? So he's yeah. he's all about the adventure, right? And in one case, he's totally right. and In another case, he's completely wrong. They they needed yeah. to get out of that darkness. Um, mm-hmm. So fear does tell us something, but it's a matter of having an ordered enough soul that you can hear fear when you should hear it and ignore it at other times when it's time to plow forward and when it's time to do the thing you're supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And in the same way, you have a similar speech given by Caspian to his sailors when they're all kind of like, oh yeah, we kind of like to go back to Narnia. And then gradually they have to think of, okay, what kind of rhetoric can we use to get them to keep sailing? right? And they come up with, well, you seem to be under the misapprehension that we even want you to come with us. Really, this is this is a very select group of people sailing with us to the end of the world. You'll carry the name Dawn Treader and your descendants will too for the rest of narnian history and please feel free to stay here if you want to and in fact i can't even promise we're going to take all of you and that seems to kind of like turn them around now here's the weird thing lewis is getting this i think a lot of it anyway from the poem ulysses by alfred lord tennyson so this is this is a poem put into the mouth of ulysses uh, odysseus after his voyages And he's talking to his men, which like in the Odyssey, of course, his men are all dead by this point. But in other legends, they're not. And he's talking about he's talking about how he doesn't want to stay there on the island, which which like you can tell, like that's also shows that Tennyson is not quoting from the Odyssey because all Odysseus wanted was to get back to the island in the Odyssey. And he didn't even want to go to Troy in the first place in the Odyssey. But he's tired and he's restless and he's talking to these men and he's saying, much have I seen and known cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself, not least, but honored of them all and drunk delight of battle with my peers far on the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am a part of all that I have met. Yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains. But every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things. And vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this grey spirit, yearning and desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. And then he talks about, uh, okay, I'm making Telemachus my son, the ruler of this island, so that, so that I can, I can go on. Right. This is my son, mine own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter in the isle, well loved of me, discerning to fulfil this labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Sounds a little bit like Karaikin and the Duffel Puds, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's talking to his men again. There lies the port. The vessel puffs her sail. There gloom the dark broad seas. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are old old age path yet his honor and his toil death closes all but something ere the end some work of noble note may yet be done not unbecoming men that strove with gods the lights begin to twinkle from the rocks the long day wanes the slow moon climbs the deep moans round with many voices come my friends tis not too late to seek a newer world push off And sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles, whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So that's a good chunk of Ulysses by Tennyson. You can kind of see some of the places that sort of jive with the the voyage of the dawn treader
1: Yeah, that, it sounds very much to me like the reaper cheek thing of, I will Sail east and then I will paddle east and then I will sink with my nose to the sea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like inspiring stuff. Right. It's, yeah. it makes you want to like jump up and cheer and sort of be like, yeah, I'm going to go sailing. You know, so you kind of want to shout hurrah and go out and explore and never, never stop. Right. Never cease from exploration. Right. And it seems to me, at least from, you know, what Lewis is saying here or the view of exploration that Lewis is giving here that seems to be a poem that's inspiring him, right? But here's the thing. Lewis would have known exactly where Tennyson's poem came from. It's not from the Odyssey. It's from Dante. And it's from, Mm -hmm. because Dante didn't have access to the Odyssey. Dante had access to a bunch of legends about Odysseus, about Ulysses, which is what Dante called him. And Tennyson's poem is taken almost entirely from see Dante and Virgil are going down into hell and they're in one of the lower rungs it's the rung of the false counselors and they know that what ulysses has done is taken a ship of men actually here I'll just read it so this is this is ulysses in hell saying why he was put there in the realm of the false counselors When I sailed away from Circe, who beguiled me to stay more than a year near Gaeta before Aeneas gave that place a name, neither my fondness for my son, nor pity for my old father, nor the love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. Therefore, I set out on the open sea with but one ship and that small company of those who never had deserted me—in other words, his men—right, I saw as far as Spain, far as Morocco, along both shores. I saw Sardinia, and, and saw the other islands that sea bathes. And I and my companions were already old and slow when we approached the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones—the boundary of the Mediterranean, where it empties out into into the Atlantic. You know, which like yeah. the the mm-hmm.
1: legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah, the legend was you weren't supposed to go past there, right? Where Hercules set up his boundary stones that men might heed and never reach beyond. Upon my right, I had gone past Seville in Spain, and on the left, already past Ceuta in, in Africa. Brothers, I said, O you who, having crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reach the west to this brief waking time that is still left unto your senses. You must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun, and of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave you birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. I spurred my comrades with this brief address to meet the journey with such eagerness that I could hardly then have held them back. And having turned our stern toward morning, we made wings out of our oars in a wild flight and always gained upon our left-hand side. At night, I now could see the other pole and all its stars. The star of ours had fallen and never rose above the plane of the ocean. Five times the light beneath the moon had been rekindled and as many times was spent since that hard passage faced our first attempt. When there before us rose a mountain, dark because of distance, and it seemed to me the highest mountain I had ever seen. And by the way, this is purgatory that he's seeing, which only... Mm. Which Dante will see, but Dante has to go through hell to get there and God guides him on his quest. This is Ulysses out of sheer impudence, passing the limits that God has placed on mankind and going to the other side of the world where living people are not supposed to voyage and seeing purgatory, Mount Purgatory, where only spirits are supposed to be, right? And we were glad... But this soon turned to sorrow, for out of that new land a whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against her bow. Three times it turned around with all the waters, and at the fourth she lifted up the stern, so that our prow plunged deep and pleased an other, capital O other in in this translation. So pleased God, right? God sent the whirlwind to, to drown them until the sea again closed over us and that's the end of that canto where where dante through virgil is is talking to ulysses right and it's and it's very obviously the the passage that tennyson is taking his super inspiring poem ulysses from right yeah but the meanings couldn't be more different because dante is saying stay in your place oh man you know, you know that you that you shouldn't be going beyond this fixed place, and and Tennyson is saying, "Screw that! I'm going to go beyond this fixed place and explore." Right. Yeah. So it's interesting that Lewis is taking that same language. I think he very obviously is drawing on Ulysses' speech, putting it in Reepicheep's mouth, in the mouth of the second sleeper, and and also to an extent in Caspian but i think it really does raise an important question right which is so much of this is about adventure and the glory of adventure when is adventure for adventure's sake good and when is it going too far when when does adventure become when does bravery become foolhardiness
1: right. I pretty much say it's it's good up until you want to explore a land where nightmares come true. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then after that, it's like no, just well, it's it's funny because
0: I mean, Reepeachip is the noblest character in the in the whole book. It's funny though because Lewis does deal with this question just a little bit, right? Because t- towards the end, Caspian and King Edmund have a kind of falling out because Caspian is taken with the same sort of love of of adventure that Reepicheep is taken with, right? And he's not allowed to, like, in, in this case, it's more the Dante version of Ulysses, right? Because, you know, just like Dante says, neither love that I owed my son nor love that I owed my wife or father could constrain me to stay on the island, right? But I wanted to keep going. And that's the wrong choice. And for Caspian too, he has obligations,
1: and and yeah, well, he's he's the king. You can't yeah. just abandon everything.
0: Yeah, which I think is a good way to settle the question. Reepicheep isn't a king, but he does have responsibility. as leader of the mice. Yeah, I mean he just, the succession is provided for. The leader of the mice position goes on to Peepacheep, right after <laughs> Reepicheep. But so maybe it's just that Caspian didn't have any kids yet. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting.
1: I, I don't know. Do we ever get a sense of how old Reaper Chief is? I don't know. I mean... Caspian is just like 15, 16 at this point, right? Yeah. So it makes sense that he would want to go with Reaper Chief, but it would also make sense of, no, you have to be you're in a position of responsibility. Yeah. And you have to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Right. And right. like I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, I think, too, that I, that's a great point, which, by the way, raises a side question, which is, like, do talking animals in Narnia have lifespans that are more like humans' lifespans or more like animals' lifespans? But good. we can come back to that some other time, because I think the question you raised is is more important, which is, yeah, does age have something to do with this, right? Because when you are a certain age, when you are around the age that Caspian is, you are... Your appetite for adventure is going to be pretty naturally wedded so that it's less noble for you to want to launch out into the deep than it is for maybe someone that it would take more bravery to to do that. Now, on the other hand, that older someone more usually does have obligations, right? That prevents them from like joining a war, for example, or, you know exploring or or whatever else right so in a lot of those cases it is the right decision for them not to abandon their their obligations right but i think there's something to that though in that when you're young it takes a lot less holiness or sanctification to to want to do one of these like great glorious adventurous things right then not that you shouldn't do it because i think to a certain extent like that's not such a terrible thing for a young person to do but that it's more meaningful when it's bilbo baggins doing it who's comfortably middle-aged and really likes this hobbit
1: hole bother burgling and everything to do with this
0: yeah yeah exactly i wish i was in my hobbit hole with the kettle just beginning to sing or something like that yeah i love by the way that the last the last word in the hobbit is tobacco jar just like you know reinforcing this idea of the of the comforts of home
1: Yeah,
0: but uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting book in terms of kind of testing and testing what the limits of adventure are, right? Because part of what Eustace needs is he needs to be that kind of a young man, right? He needs to be more like Reepicheep, whether Reepicheep is a young mouse or an old mouse or what, right? He, he needs to be in places where he's unsafe or where he's uncomfortable or whatever else, because, he was not made to live like beasts right he he wasn't made to just fill his belly right and 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 live for his stomach or his physical comforts or whatever else right part of what makes adventure grand is the physical discomfort because the physical discomfort causes you to look beyond physical needs and feel the keen wind of eternity blowing through the hair of your soul, you know, or or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that you get past that, you get past the need to be comfortable. And that, of course, is a lesson that a lot of the sailors have a good deal of difficulty learning, right? And even you see this divide as well between the sailors and Reepicheep in the last sea, where Lucy is looking at all these underwater people. And She's just intrigued by them, right? It's this entire other society that, that exists underwater that she can see. And they have their own version of like hunting and hawking and yeah. knights and, and shepherds and shepherdesses and all these things. So cool. But also, of course, they're all naked. And oh. when Drinian, I think it's Drinian, sees them and sees Lucy looking at them. He's like, turn around quickly, quickly pretend like you didn't see anything because some of these sailors, like they've been at sea for a long time and they're going to think the wrong thing when they see, you know, these naked sea women, right. And they're going to be diving into the sea and, you know, and, and again, it's like this, this Lucy doesn't even think of that because she's so given to seeing things correctly or clearly, but they're still controlled by their appetites like the duffel puds, like, you know, materialism says we should be, right? Yeah. And uh, like Eustace probably would end up being if, if it were, wasn't for this. But but then they hear a big splash and Reaper Chief has jumped in. And of course, Drinian at once thinks, oh, he's gone to, you know, see these, right. you know, to see these people. I think they think he's like going to fight them or something like that i don't know Yeah. but like they of course are assuming things about his motives and when he when he comes out of the water he's just deeply moved by the experience right he hasn't been looking at the naked fish or the naked mer people right he's been he's been tasting the water and the water's like drinkable light so suddenly yeah isn't that awesome i think dante i think that's from dante's paradiso as well but they're using like at that point, right when they're at that point in the in the ocean and they've come that far, some of these things begin to collapse because they're not hungry anymore. So they're not they're not simply serving their bellies anymore, right? But they are they're drinking light. They're drinking this this yeah. water that is, in Cheep's words, sweet, right? Non-salty, but it also has this taste that's like nothing you've ever tasted. And they don't need to eat, and they don't need to drink anything else. And don't it, sleep, it really? purifies them and makes them young. What'd you say?
1: They don't sleep either. Like yeah, after-
0: yeah. So there's a there's a kind of they suddenly come to a place where the physical is being taken up into the spiritual world that minds are made for, right? Yeah. But that spiritual world is being expressed physically. At the, you know, in, in 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 the same way. everything that they see is a manifestation of of the beauty of God, right? Everything that they see, and, and obviously that's always true, right? But things are things are more other, right? And things are more holy as they get closer to the world's end. Which, by the way, in Paradiso, when Dante is approaching the throne of God, he, he passes through a bunch of spheres of planets to get there and finally comes to the end of all time and space right so it's like you think of these like concentric rings right and he comes to the very to the very to the very end right to the uh, to the fixed stars right which is how they viewed the stars that were not planets they viewed them as fixed in in relation to each other and just kind of rotating around the the earth and uh, and once you pass that you go beyond time and space and you come to the place where you can experience where you can actually see god right but it's but it's beyond you know your ability to see earthly things and you've obviously been purged and purified and everything else that you can see god similar to the way they're being changed by the by the drinkable light right and everything kind of inverts at that point because again space is getting weird and and it's almost as if it turns inside out and so suddenly God is at the center of everything rather than the earth and the physical world is on the outside, right? The Voyager of the Land Shredder puts me in mind of that as well because even though they're not like rising into the air past the spheres of the planets, what they are doing is they're getting to the edge of this round flat world and and they're going to pass this final barrier and finally come and have this experience of, of Aslan who's been guiding them all along right? And this is where he lives. And at first they see him as a lamb and he turns he turns into Aslan the lion and uh, tells Lucy and Edmund that they can't come back to Narnia. Doesn't say anything about I think he doesn't say anything about whether Eustace can come or not. Uh, and is Eustace never to come back here either? So said so Lucy, child, said Aslan, do you really need to know that? So again, you know, he's having fish for breakfast right which is which is very not dantean right dante he transcends all that but but lewis brings back kind of the incarnatory aspect of of jesus right and, and and that he's eating fish after the resurrection and and he asks the same question to lucy that jesus asks to peter what is that to you you follow me when peter's asking jesus about what about john is john gonna die too because you just said I was going to. <laughs> this book is just so chock full of allusion after allusion after allusion to all kinds of different literature. We haven't even talked about the Imram, which is a an Irish story about sailing to the end of the world. And I don't think we have time to, but yeah, he's just drawing on so much literature, weaving it into an excellent story and doing it in such a, seemingly simple way right i mean these are these are stories for children that are easy for children to understand but but it's so dense and so rich that you can come back to it again and again but uh, that's probably where we need to end it tonight but uh, let's see I'm trying to think of a final goofy thing that we could talk about the the contrast between bilbo and reba Cheap struck me as as funny but i don't think we could just like ad hoc script out a conversation between bilbo and reap cheap
1: well i do think the final this has nothing to do with that but the final line of the book is pretty funny because that's everybody's talking about like eustace is so much better so much better and his mom's like oh he's commonplace and tiresome and it's so stupid Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah i love this i love the ending only two more things need be told. One is that Caspian and his men all came safely back to Ramandu's island, and the three lords awoke from their sleep. Caspian married Ramandu's daughter, and they all reached Narnia in the end, and she became a great queen and the mother and grandmother of great kings. The other is that back in our own world, everyone soon started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy. Everyone except Aunt Alberta, who said he had become very commonplace and tiresome, and it must have been the influence of those Pevensey children. Yeah, that's a great ending. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me as we explore the very ends of the world of Narnia. And listeners, if there's anything we missed that you'd really still like to talk talk about, feel free to email us and let us know. "'Why is it called Aslan's Table?' asked Lucy presently.
3: "'Because Aslan died on it.'
0: "'It is set here by his bidding,' said the girl, "'for those who come so far. "'Some call this island the world's end, "'for though you can sail further, "'this is the beginning of the end.' "'But how does the food keep?' asked the practical Eustace. "'It is eaten and renewed every day,' said the girl. "'This you will see.' "'And what are we to do about the sleepers?' said Caspian. "'In the world from which my friends come,' Here he nodded at Eustace and the Pavensis. They have a story of a prince or a king coming to a castle where all the people lay in an enchanted sleep. In that story, he could not dissolve the enchantment until he had kissed the princess. What do you think Caspian wants to do? Caspian? Who's
3: Caspian? He's the one
0: that just said that about his friends in the world where my friends come. They have a story about a girl who's in an enchanted sleep. Do you know what story that is? And everyone else is enchanted in a sleep?
3: I know Sleeping, Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. He wants to kiss.
0: And you can't, you can't dissolve the enchantment. You can't dissolve the enchantment until you kiss the princess. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, what do you think he wants to do?
3: Kiss the princess. I
0: think you, I think you might be right. Let's see what she says. But here, said the girl, it is different. Here he cannot kiss the princess till he has dissolved the enchantment. Then, said Caspian, in the name of Aslan, show me how to sit about that work at once. My father will teach you that, said the girl. Your father, said everyone, who is he and where? Look, said the girl, turning round and pointing to, at the door in the hillside. They could see it more easily now. For while they had been talking, the stars had grown fainter, and great gaps of white light were appearing in the grayness of the eastern sky. Her father is going to tell her, is going to tell them, that the way to dissolve the enchantment, is to sail all the way to the end of the world.
3: Dun dun dun!
0: Do you know who the? You know who her father is? The king. And her father is a star. He used to be oh. a star.
3: Dun dun dun! Shall be continued. But first, we're going to talk about it. Okay.
0: okay. So, what do you think? What? What do you think about the thing I just read? It's
3: good, but what Ew, do? I like the part where the princess came in. No, she was so pretty.
0: So, do you want to hear about how she sang?
3: How did she sing? Her name is, is, is Aurora.
0: You know, we don't know what her name is, but I think Aurora would be a great name for
3: it. For yeah, her. she's a pink girl. She has a pink or dress. Well, this one has
0: a blue dress. <laughs> All right, let's see. Slowly the door opened again, and out there came a figure as tall and straight as oh, the girls, but not so slender. It carried no light, but the light seemed to come from it. As it came nearer, Lucy saw that it was like an old man, His silver beard came down to his bare feet in front, and his silver hair hung down to his heels behind, and his robe appeared to be made from the fleece of silver sheep. He looked so mild and grave that once more all the travelers rose to their feet.
3: I just want to know how she sung.
0: Well, we'll get there, okay? But the old man came on without speaking to the travelers and stood on the other side of the table opposite his daughter. Then both of them held up their arms before them and turned to face the east. What's in the east? Do you know?
3: It's in the east. Mm-hmm.
0: What comes up in the east?
3: the think.
0: And the sun goes down in the west. So oh. if it goes down in the west, where does it come up? East. That's right. Yeah. So they it's it's nighttime and mm-hmm. these two people are staring towards the east, right? Held their arms before them and turned to face the east. In that position, they began to sing. I wish I could write down the song, but no one who was present could remember it. Lucy said afterwards that it was high, almost shrill, but very beautiful, a cold kind of song, an early morning kind of song. And as they sang, the gray clouds lifted from the eastern sky. sky. And as they sang, the gray clouds lifted from the eastern sky and the white patches grew bigger and bigger till it was all white and the sea began to shine like silver. And long afterward, but those who sang all the time, the east began to turn red, and at last, unclouded, the sun came up out of the sea, and its long level ray shot down the length of the table on the gold and silver and on the stone night. So what were they singing for? What was their song making happen?
3: The the um the sun go
0: up. Yeah, that's right. Now
3: that's where we start.
0: Begging your majesty's pardons all, said Rince, but why not fall too while you're discussing it? You don't see a dinner like this every day. Not for your life, said Caspian. That's right, that's right, said several of the sailors. Too much magic about here. The sooner we're back on board, the better. Depend upon it, said Reepcheep. It was from eating this food that these three lords came by a seven years' sleep. I wouldn't touch it to save my life, said Drinian. The light's going uncommon quick, said Rhyne Elf. Back to ship, back to ship, muttered the men. I really think, said Edmund, they're right. We can decide what to do with the three sleepers tomorrow. We don't to eat the food, and there's no point in staying here for the night. The whole place smells of magic and danger. So, Davy, my question to you is this. Since you picked this passage out to talk about what does magic smell like?
3: I imagine it, ha- it would have sort of a powdery smell, if it did
0: have a smell. Sort of a powdery smell? Like what? What else has a powdery smell? You what?
3: Not exactly sure. I like how it's sort of mysterious. They don't really explore. They they certain C.S. Lewis sort of leaves it mysterious on the sort of land of dreams thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean when they go through the dark island? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is right after that, right?
3: Yeah. And then the death, death water island. Yeah, that's sort of. Yeah.
0: Is Deathwater Island your favorite?
3: I don't know. I like a lot, a lot, the lot, islands a lot.
0: Which one would you most want to go to? Oh,
3: well, probably, well, I can say I would probably want to go to the the one with the food.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Because you like mustard?
3: Oh, because, because I'm not going to get turned into gold or trapped on a nightmare. Yeah. Or
0: so those are both fun there. to read about, but they wouldn't be so much fun to go to no but the island with the table would be more fun to go to
3: not fun but definitely more safer the way i'd want to go the way i'd want to go
0: so you like it because it's safe
3: yeah well it's not that it's not that i like it more than the others it's that i'd rather go to it than all the others because it is safer Mm. yeah yeah
0: now on the island who do they meet on the island of the sleepers, at the perilous table,
3: they so they meet. They meet. Don't they meet a girl, and then they meet her father, who's a real who turns out to be a star who turned into a person.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks for raising your voice; so that they could hear you. Yeah, yeah. What did they tell them? Do you remember what they tell them about the three sleepers and how they got there, and why the knife is there on the table, and why the yes. banquet is there?
3: So they stopped and. They, and so they started quarreling, and they got the knife involved. And it turned out that it might be the same very knife that the White Witch tried to stab Aslan. But then it seemed to have put an enchanted spell on them, and they started sleeping. And the spell could only be broken by by going by if someone keep kept. this dropped one man off, and he kept going east for. Me. Never and ever.
0: Wait, they dropped one man off?
3: Well, yeah, well, that's what, well, the guy said, well, this old star person said that you had to drop one person. Yeah. Didn't they drop leaping yeah, off?
0: Yeah, that's the way to break the spell, exactly. Good. So you talk to this star, and, and Lucy says, Aren't you a star any longer? Ramandu, the star, says, I am a star at rest, my daughter. When I said for the last time... Decrepit and old beyond all that you can reckon. I was carried to this island. I'm not so old now as I was then. Every morning a bird brings me a fireberry from the valleys in the sun. And each fireberry takes away a little of my age. And when I have become as young as the child that was born yesterday, then I shall take my rising again. For we are at the earth's eastern rim and once more tread the great dance. In our world said Eustace. A star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. What do you think what do you think he means by that? When Eustace says in our world a star is a flaming ball of gas and and Ramendu says, in, even in your world that's not what a star is, only what it's made of.
3: Let's see, uh
0: what's the difference between what something is and what it's made of? Well,
3: let's say uh, a lamp. A lamp is made of metal, some metal and some glass but and some wire
0: but it but what it is is a lamp okay yeah so what do you think Ramandu means when he says, even in your world, stars are not flaming balls of gas, they're just made of flaming balls of gas um, or a ball of flaming gas I don't
3: know, because that seems exactly. Indeed, what star? That seems what a star is, because you because you you describe what it's made of. You wouldn't describe the shape.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So any. So go back to the lamp analogy, right? So why is a lamp a different thing from just metal and glass? And yeah, what makes a lamp a lamp if not what it's made of?
3: Well, what makes a lamp a lamp? Well. Lamps have to, they have to make light. Okay. And they have to have a pole pole and a base that allows you to see, that allows you to stand up.
0: So you're kind of defining a lamp, right? Based on, based not on what it's made of, but based on its purpose?
3: Yes, sort of. Or something else. maybe.
0: So what about, what about
3: a star? A star? Uh, let me see. I just don't know. Um,
0: Does a star have a purpose?
3: Yes. It's supposed to keep things around it. If a star wasn't there in the middle of our solar system, it would sort of freeze out and all the planets would sort of be shifting in space. Yes. So. I suppose a star is sort of provides for things, I guess.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's kind of its purpose, to be a um, center of gravity?
3: Well, no, because it also provides heat. I think it just provides, it can provide stuff for a lot of things. Because because otherwise it would, yeah, really everything would sort of go crazy. Yeah, yes.
0: So what what's the difference between a star and a lamp?
3: Well, stars are bigger.
0: Okay. So when you make a when you make a lamp, you think small. And when you make a star, you think big.
3: I don't make stars.
0: You don't make stars? No. Oh. Well, maybe that's the difference, right? Yeah. So what's so what's one really big difference between a star and a lamp?
3: Mm-hmm. One real big difference is that a lamp can be made by a human hand, but a star isn't natural and cannot be made by human hand and yeah. craft. Yeah.
0: Well, what do you mean by natural?
3: Natural sort of occurring without hand and craft of man. Oh, like
0: that. Yeah. Does So is a star not made by anybody?
3: No, but it.
0: But I was talking about man. Okay. Okay. Does it start? Because we know what a lamp's purpose is, right? Because we make the lamps, right? So we can say, like, okay, a lamp's purpose is to give light to a room, right? That's that's what it does. That's what it's for, right? And maybe to look nice too, right? Yes. And so we mold these things out of these materials. Yeah. Mom does like lamps. So we mold these things out of these materials to provide these, like, this nice glow to our rooms, right? And it's easy for us to answer the question of what a lamp is because we know exactly what its purpose is, right? But okay. a star, who makes the stars? God. Yeah, so what do we know about the star's purpose?
3: What do we know about the star's purpose? Let me see. Yeah. The star's
0: purpose is to sort of provide for us. Okay. So yeah. Uh, that's That's at least do we, do we know that we know for sure everything about what a star's purpose is?
3: No. Why not? Well, we don't have enough we don't have enough technology yet.
0: Well, how's technology going to help us know what a star's purpose is if it's made by God?
3: Look inside a star?
0: Okay. But that would just tell us what it's made of, right? We already know what oh. it's made of, right? Yes. So if the maker determines the purpose of something, can we ever know exactly what a star's purpose is? No. Can we ever know what the purpose is of anything that we don't make? No. Why not?
3: Because we just have, we can just have guesses, but none of it. It, but it doesn't mean that we actually will, can get it, can get it right. So because only the creator, the maker of the thing, knows what. Knows what its purpose is. All right, that's pretty until, good. Until it, until its purpose is told.
0: So we've got a couple of things, right? We've got what something's made out of, and we've got what something is made to do, right? Okay. So I can I can say of a human being, right? I can say I know what a human's basically made out of, like cells, right? Carbon, right? Mm-hmm. I can know kind of a little bit about what Ooh. a human's made to do. What else determines the nature of a human? Is it just uh, purpose and the uh, thing that it's made of, or is there other stuff that determines, like, what a human is?
3: I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's a hard question. Do you think when you talk about stars, do you think you think it would be right to say... <gasps> Why are you yawning on purpose?
3: I didn't yawn on purpose. Yeah, you
0: are. You're no, coming, you're not. You're making yourself yawn. Are you tired of talking? Are you tired? Of no, talking? I'm not. Are you sure? Yeah.
3: How dare you.
0: Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> so what do you think when he says, even in your world, that's not what a star is, only what it's made of? You think Ramandu is saying, even in your world, stars have a different, have a purpose, you're forgetting about the purpose? Or is he saying that there's something else about the nature itself of a star that Eustace is not seeing?
3: Probably the nature itself,
0: and I can't really guess that, so. Yeah, that's fair enough. Because we can't even tell really what a star's purpose is exactly. We only know how it influences, a little bit of how it influences us, right? Yes. Or what? Or what role it plays in our thought and in our lives? Do you know what? Do you know what it means to be reductive? No. When you're reductive, you kind of try to reduce everything, right? If you look at the ocean, right? Ocean. What kinds of feelings do you feel when you when you look at the ocean?
3: The ocean. Mm-hmm. What's the ocean?
0: You know what the ocean is. What kinds of feelings do you feel when you look at the ocean?
3: Well, when I look at it from far away, it looks sort of peaceful. But when you're sort of up there on the beach, it sort of makes swampy. It looks not that peaceful.
0: Do you feel Do you feel anything when you look at the ocean? Like, Do you feel something like yeah. deep or some sort of joy or happiness or fear hmm. when you look at the ocean?
3: Oh. Hmm. Uh...
0: All right, well, what if someone will look at the ocean and say, well, all the ocean is a bunch of salt water. Do you feel like that would be fair?
3: For no. Them to say that? Not. Why not? Um, is that wrong? Sort
0: of. Why, why would it be wrong?
3: Because the ocean Because the
0: person could say, well, yeah, it, it is. totally is just a bunch of salt water, right? And all these feelings that you have, they're just feelings. They don't mean anything about what the ocean is. If you test it, if you analyze it in the lab, it's brine, right? It's salt, salt and water, right? So that's called being reductive. But when you reduce something to just like what it's made out of, then you are trying to say that the world is not a place where any meaning can happen. So Eustace, remember how Eustace has been educated? How has Eustace yes. been, what, what kind of education has Eustace had?
3: Science, not much fiction or anything, and...
0: Mm-hmm. So what's the danger of that kind of education? Even though science is good, right? There's nothing wrong with science. But what, what can be the danger of that sort of thing if you don't read any of the right books? Uh,
3: I know what happens. I just can't
0: really explain it in the right words. No, well, that's okay. These are hard questions. They're not questions with, like, an easy answer to them. But yeah, Eustace, Eustace mainly has had an education that's been about the facts that you could get. And Mm -hmm. storing lots of facts in your brain so that you can spit them out and look smarter than somebody else, rather than knowing about things in the world that are bigger than you and then fill you with wonder Mm -hmm. and awe, you know. And and so even though Eustace has been changed, right, by this point, even though though Eustace has been changed, right, and he's not a little know-it-all anymore, he still has this basic education of... Oh, well, all a star is is it's a big ball of flaming gas, right and Roland says no, 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 even in your world, that's not what stars are yeah. no. is there anything else you wanted to talk about?
3: But not anything that forms her mind okay, so I just want to tell you that um I'm so glad you you're here to listen and but something. think uh well, I don't know what to say.
0: Well, that's okay. Uh, Virginia, can you say email us at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com?
3: Email us at inklingsvarietyhour at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com. gmail.com. Good job. And some lots of money. Good. And my dad is, is...
0: Can you guys help me think of a thing to say at the end of the podcast?
3: Uh-huh, me say goodbye. Like... Oh, Wait.
0: Like, see you later, or stay classy. Don't forget to read a lot? Mm-hmm. Okay, try that.
3: So, um, when this pod, pod whatever it's called, is done, we're going to say a goodbye thing, and it's, like if, if wait, is it done
0: right now? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and say
3: it. Well, look. See you later and don't. And make sure to, re, to read books because then you're gonna be smarter. And, um, and one thing <laughs> make sure to read books that, that are a good level for you. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and you should also read what? Um, um you should also read The Don Shredder. Oh, and one more thing.
0: Listeners, thank you again, and I will see you next time.
1: All this encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on a decent plan. With here, an addict of Tolkien, there, a Charles Williams fan.
3: Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The
0: Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Do you know what the Dawn is? Do you know what Dawn is?
3: Midnight.
0: Nope. What's dawn? I don't know. That's when the sun rises. That's oh. dawn. Okay. So they were just.
3: So let me tell you a. the sunrise. But right? let me tell me you a memory verse that has. I mean, not really a memory verse. Um, well, I think the um, poem memory, or something like that. The at, um, 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 that has dawn in it. Okay, dawn on the first day. Of the week, Mary Malin and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was an violent earthquake. The angel of the Lord, um, the angel of the Lord, uh, came down from us and going to the tomb, go back the stone and sat on it. Good
0: job, That's Matthew
3: You twenty-eight verse. I said,
0: What's the angel coming to tell the Mary?
3: Jesus, Jesus, He risen. He risen. He rose. In. He rose. He rose.
0: Yeah. Um. Why does that remind? You, why does this remind you of
3: that? Of uh, because dawn, dawn, dawn. Mm-hmm. It has a dawn. In yeah. It. Where's the princess? Wait. Okay. The and cries of star of the king. We know what to do with 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 the star of the god. Are We're not talking a, are you about that, Audrey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did Jesus encourage the Lord to go? What? I don't know. Nobody okay. knows what he said, but it's ridiculous. ridiculous. All right,
0: can you say it again, Adriana? According.
3: Jesus Christ is the star of the angel. As the Jesus, who trespass against us and leads to us not to Jesus, but us we, I am the truth in the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a
0: pretty good thing to Um, sign off with.